Welcome back to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. This is the first episode of I don't even know how many there are going to be. <laughs> well, you, you talked about it with me earlier, and it was like 16 to 18. <laughs> now, I don't know if it that's going to hold up, but it might it be. It might end up being more like 20 or 24. Oh, my gosh. I thought it was going to be less. Uh, Xenogears. This is our Xenogears story analysis. And oh, um, it is, of all, I mean, literally of any game that we could possibly choose to talk about, this is probably the most intimidating because of how much there is to dive into with this. Um, And we talked about this a little bit on that last episode of our Near Replicant podcast, but I'm really glad that we're going to be able to do this one with the kind of dual perspective I hope to have as often as possible, Right, where one person has played the game before and one person has not. Yes. And so you kind of get someone who's not played it before coming in to someone who has, and you get two kind of interesting looks at it that way. I expect that will be that will be fun. Yeah. So I thought uh, long and hard about how how do we even where do you even start? How do you even begin talking about Xenogears? And you know, I thought, okay, maybe we'll do an episode on Jewish mysticism, build a foundation for the references that are going to be there, mm-hmm. and we'll do an episode on Freudian and Neo-Freudian psychoanalysis. And, uh, you know, maybe throw in some philosophy, Nietzschean philosophy. And then, you know, maybe we'll do an episode on, like, Gnostic, uh, Gnosticism. And yeah. it's, it's like, you and can do it Jung that way. And Lacan. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can do it that way. But I think our kind of, the way we've been trying to do this so far is um, we don't want to spoil events. We want people who have not played the game before, if this is their first time playing it, to be able to play it without having too much spoiled. And I think mm. that doing it that way would, yes, it would like build a great foundation that would help you understand the game as you play it, but it might spoil it a little bit too. Right. So, and it would also, I think, just people would start dropping off if we have four episodes that haven't even, <laughs> game hasn't even started yet. <laughs> so it's probably better <coughs> that we do our first episode today on dev history, mm. uh, as we like to do, we, we want to get into the heads of the developers a little bit, the creators, understand yeah, yeah. Uh, where their headspace was when they were making this, what their goals were, some of the struggles they went through, which will give us some context, but not the kind of context that spoils the experience necessarily. So we'll just gonna, we're going to start there today. Today's episode will be on dev history. Uh, Tetsuya Takahashi, um, who is the creator, director of the game, and his wife, um, Kaori Tanaka, uh, she has a pen name she goes by, which is Soria Saga, which I'll be referring right. to her as for the most part. So Soria Saga. Soria Saga. And Saga is an interesting yeah. name for her, given that I think the games that they made after this were Xenosaga, right? Xenosaga. Yep. That's interesting. That's actually that's good. I wonder if there's. Yeah, I think there's a dual meaning there. In maybe, fact, I'd say there's a dual there's meaning there's behind everything, <laughs> based on like what I know about this game. So uh, yeah. Um, just so you know, uh, we'll actually start the game after this episode, and so next week when we come back, we're going to play through the intro of the game all the way to the end of the Black Moon Forest. So that's the point you want to play up to for the next episode. 
Um, mm. And in each episode, we'll talk only about what pertains to what happened in that episode. We won't talk about future events. Mm. We won't spoil things until they happen, and then we'll make the connections as we're playing through it. As if this is your first time playing it, this will be Kason's first time playing it. It will. So, uh, it'll but be I did look into the development history. So yes. Okay. I, I'm not unequipped for this one. So here's where I thought might be best to to start talking about this game and why it's special. Um, I, I have a quote here from Tetsuya Takahashi, and he says. I know that in real life, if Tetsuya Takahashi is referring to himself in third person, spoke directly to a bunch of young people, they would never accept the message. So I use the story and the characters I've created to act as my spokespeople. And this is alluding to more or less a philosophy behind storytelling that I have adopted myself, which is the point of it is to say something. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have something you want to say and you're using metaphor and allegory and symbolism and these fictional events to say what you're trying to say. That's the sure. art in the literary medium, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's what, that's what, what's what makes, makes it literary <laughs> in nature is the use of these forms to take a fictional, made-up world, <laughs> this fantasy land or, or science fiction world or whatever, uh, and to actually say something important um, that pertains to the real world, right? That, that people can take and mm -hmm. that they can, um, what's the word, that they can use in their own lives. Sure. It, it, that they can... Uh, adopt or that can help change apply. their thinking or yeah. apply mm -hmm. to their own lives. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you very yes. much. And that is that I think this <laughs> maybe more than any other game is so important to like fully appreciating Xenogears. Because Xenogears maybe in like I've, I've seen a lot of people online compare it to like classical Russian literature in its use of okay. allegory and metaphor and ah, like yes, philosophy of course, of course. to say something mm -hmm. really important, whether it's Dostoevsky or... Tolstoy, yeah. 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 Um, so there, there are some parallels there and, and there's definitely a sense that Xenogears is like a masterpiece on a similar level to something like that. Hmm. I, I'm not gonna say for sure whether I agree with that this mm -hmm. moment. <laughs> I, I, I really am excited to dive into the, the game again, but, that, but it is important, I think, to mention that many people who are fans of Xenogears appreciate its storytelling on the same level as something like that. Okay, that's a good way to put it, yeah, yeah. And that is, unheard of for video games otherwise. Yes, that is unusual. Like, yes. people do not take video game storytelling seriously no, at no, all. No. On, a, on, a, on a more wide scale. I think right. the people who watch us and you know what we're doing, you know, we try to take it seriously, but there aren't very many people in the mainstream who do. Mm. And Xenogears is one of the games I and other fans of the game would use to say no, video games not only can be, but mm -hmm. already are there. And have been, yeah. Right. 
So it's, it's an, a, an absolutely brilliant story. And the narrative is really the point of Xenogears. So that being said, it can be very difficult to understand it if you are not familiar with a lot of the things we were talking about. Maybe we want to do a whole episode on this and that and <laughs> yeah, this and yeah. that. But don't worry, uh, not only will we be here to help guide you through the story, <laughs> but many of you who are watching, who are super vets of Xenogears in the yeah. comments will also be here to correct us along the way. Of course, of course. <laughs> and, uh, and help everyone come to an understanding of what you it know, is that's going on here. In a large way, we also, we kind of rely on people in the comments to, yeah. you know, uh, supplement yeah. the, the stuff that we're putting in here. That's why it's a video game story book club. Book club, yes. <laughs> it's not a right? video game club. It's a video game story book club. Video game story <laughs> club that's like a book club, so. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so that is, that's what, makes Xenogear special and that's what we're going to try our very best to dissect and it's it's going to be a large task. This is not an easy thing to break down. But why don't we start with uh, the creators themselves. So Xenogears was made in... It, it's, it came it, out it gets, in 98. Yeah, sandwiched between like Final Fantasy 7 and 8. And 8, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That's when it came out. And it was created by... Uh, Tetsuya Takahashi and Kaori Tanaka, or Soria Saga, like we were saying, yeah. um, who were veterans of the Final Fantasy team during the Super Nintendo era. Yeah, they were both developers. Mm -hmm. The game was also produced by Hiromichi Tanaka, who had, who, he was the guy who left college with Sakaguchi to come join Square. They were like buddies mm -hmm. in college, and they like, they like left university yeah, to go work yeah. at Squaresoft. And they were both kind of like uh, leaders of different teams at Squaresoft. Nice, nice. And so like Hiromichi Tanaka uh, produced and sort of uh, helped create like the Mana series mm -hmm. and did a lot of work on some of the NES Final Fantasy games and was involved in like Saga, like uh, Romancing Saga oh, and, yeah, and that series. Um, and then, uh, so he, he kind of had his teams and like his things that he was working on. Saga Gucci was kind of the Final Fantasy, you know, uh, the lead developer on that. So Hiromichi Tanaka uh, produced uh, Xenogears. Um, so for the most part, Takahashi and uh, Soria Saga were like graphic designers. Um, they did a lot with like pixel art and graphics um, during the SNES era. I think Takahashi started his career at Neon Falcon, mm -hmm. which is um, Famous now for like the Trails series, like Trails in the Sky, Trails mm -hmm. of Cold Steel, um, but but classically for East. Right, East. Um, that was his first credit. Yeah. Yeah. So he worked on uh, East Three mm -hmm. as a monster graphics guy, and then uh, Dragon Slayer, The Legend of Heroes, which is th th this is a whole another rabbit hole, right? Dragon Slayer is a series that then branched off into Legend of Heroes, that then branched off into Trails. So the Trails oh, series, Trails in the Sky, Trails of Cold Steel, yes, yes, yes. is part of the Legend of Heroes franchise, like a kind mm. of a branch off of that, which was a branch off of Dragon Slayer. So mm. he worked on the very first Legend of Heroes game, which was Dragon Slayer 5, I think. <laughs> uh, but anyways, that was his second game that he was credited for. So he worked at Neon Falcom on, on some games in the, in the 80s, late 80s. And then... 
He left them to go work at Squaresoft and started there on Final Fantasy IV, mm -hmm. doing battle graphics. And he also worked on Romancing Saga and FF5, doing field graphics. And then he worked on FF6 as a graphic director. And, um, and Chrono Trigger, right? Yeah, Chrono Trigger as well. Yeah. And Front Mission. So a lot of credits. And almost all those same games were games that Sordia Saga was working on in graphics as well. So that's where they met, was at mm -hmm. Squaresoft, and they, um, well, she actually even helped to develop some of the character scenarios in Final Fantasy VI as well. So she did, mm -hmm. uh, she helped with like Edgar and Sabin's, you know, oh, the some brothers, of the writing. some of the scenario there, developing that cool. story. But they, the two of them bonded over shared interests in Freudian psychoanalysis and Nietzschean philosophy, theology. Mm -hmm. yeah. They would talk about all of these kind of like deeper yeah. philosophical type content. They bonded over that. She has a quote here where she says, the works of Nietzsche, Freud, and Jung uh, happen to be part of our common interests that I shared with Takashi. Xenogears is basically a story about where do we come from, what are we, and where are we going? In that respect, we were inspired by those concepts a lot. So I guess you could say some of the origins of Xenogears probably started in their conversations as they were right. dating and getting to know well, each other. Well, you can just imagine the conversation in general because they're both <laughs> working on these games and like, man, wouldn't it be sweet to make a game that was like really, really deep? Like yes. really psychologically like I intricate and yeah, oh, that'd be so cool. And yes. oh, we could we could do some Jungian stuff. And, yes. and I can just imagine those conversations happening yes. when they were first, you know. And you know, I'm, this is something we, we touched on um, in the FF8 podcast, hmm. but there was internal disagreement within the FF team about how Final Fantasy should be made moving forward. Yes. And we talked about It feels about like there's disagreement on that every for every game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like every game since, I don't know, seven-ish or so. It's like every new game has a new direction. Yeah, and you had like Kitase's view on how Final Fantasy should be made and Nomura is kind of part of that. And they yeah. wanted to go for the uh, fantasy based in reality concepts yes, that we talked and, and about. and the more Western specific. Yeah. yeah, right, which is which is kind of what has come to dominate Final Fantasy's identity maybe in the last decade or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you had Takahashi, and, and a lot of people know this, but uh, Xenogears started as a pitch for Final yes. Fantasy VII. Yeah. So what you see in Xenogears in many ways was probably his vision of what he wanted to try to do with Final Fantasy. Yes. But it was, they were told, no, this is too dark and too complicated exactly. to be a Final Fantasy mm -hmm. game or to be a fantasy game. Um, but what's so funny about it is that so much of it still made its way into Final Fantasy VII afterward. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> as if they did really like the general idea of having it be dark. They just didn't want that yeah, type of it, well, even even story. some of the there's even some. I mean, there's still a lot of like Jewish mysticism that clearly is in the other referenced ones. in yeah, Final yeah. Fantasy VII, mm -hmm. right? Like, there's still even like yeah. the main characters. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's some similarities between the the psychological journey of the main character mm -hmm. that is similar. It's just it's mm. it's it's not the same, but you can see parallels between them. Hmm. And 
it's it's just funny to me that their first initial sort of reaction to the concept of Xenogears was, no, this can't be Final Fantasy. This is this is way too dark and complicated. Make it into its own thing. <laughs> but then Final Fantasy VII ended up you know kind what, of though? adopting similar that, things. That was kind of, I believe, within the timeline of development, that was more or less before Final Fantasy VII had a clear direction, right? This was Probably in the early true. stages. Yeah. And at the early stages of Final Fantasy VII, they were developing it as a pixel game yeah. for the Super NES. Yeah. And they were only later on determining, hey, we're, we're going to branch this into Nintendo or Sony or something like that, into their new, the next generation of stuff. Right. Uh, but um, it was... I initially, what was my point with this? I can't really remember. It the the initial pitches were like super early on before it was really determined like what FF Seven was even going to be in the first place. Right. And so, I had a point to that. Well, it's it's as Xenogears was developing in house, I'm sure that Final Fantasy Seven came into development. And sure. There's it was so early on that, that lead I, over. Yeah, that I'm sure that as as development kept progressing that they may have determined, ah, we actually have a little more leeway to do some darker stuff than we yeah, thought initially, right? right. Well, but especially... before it was something else. Especially with a lot of the censorship policies they were, had been dealing with with Nintendo that were no yes. longer an issue on Sony. That's right, which at the time, they didn't yeah. know that they were going to go with the PlayStation. Right. They didn't know any of that stuff at the time that they were taking pitches on FF7. Right. Yeah. So, and I mean, a lot of these ideas even found their way into, like, Spirits Within, for instance. So oh, it's like, yeah. there was just kind of like, and, and Parasite Eve too, there was just kind of just like this bleed over of all the games they were producing at the time sort of yeah. were, and, and I think it was also popular in anime. I'm sure there'll be many people who will bring up the parallels with Neon Genesis Evangelion. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of this type of stuff just, for whatever reason, in that mid-90s to late-90s period was just like, yeah. Japanese developers were like really into this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just, oh man, let's let's like incorporate this stuff into our game. You know what? It's not only for Final Fantasy VII, him kind of getting getting turned down or turned away, but you know, some there was still a path made by which he could still create a game. It just wasn't going to have that funding. It wasn't going to have that yes. that development team behind it. Mm -hmm. um, but he also wanted to make something of a sequel to Xenogears afterwards. And that was turned down because the the company didn't have enough budget because they were putting so much into Spirits Within. Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. And so it's almost like like twice in a row he just kind of got shut down by this bigger project that was just kind of just just out of reach of him. Um, and he ultimately ended up leaving Square Enix shortly after that. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of funny that that keeps happening to him. Yeah. If he was to have a big budget, you know, like That's the things that kept getting in his way he would have been able to do something bigger, right? That's the tragedy of Xenogears in a way, yeah. is that this idea was so ambitious. I mean, much mm -hmm. more so than, than any other game Squaresoft had made at the time. Right. If it had had the budget of Final Fantasy VII, like, what could it have been, yeah. you know? First of all, <laughs> then, then we wouldn't have Final Fantasy VII, which yeah. is a really good game. Um, but <laughs> I love Final Fantasy Second of all, this is one of the reasons why I don't love the hardcore, um, <clears throat> like the graphical fidelity push that everyone's constantly aiming towards. Because um, you, very few games will have that AAA budget yeah. allocated to them. You know, each studio can only make a couple of those, you know, per every like development cycle, like Nintendo's 
probably the biggest game developing company, and they only oh, a couple per year, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And well, maybe not even that. Maybe just one a year, like real big tentpole, like you know, huge budget games. And so a company like Square Enix, it's like we can only really do like a couple of these. So you got to allocate these resources really, really carefully. But mm -hmm. if people were okay with doing games in a less <laughs> visually intense style, yeah. then you could make games like this and they wouldn't be so hurt and like cash strapped and so, but everyone's trying to push the envelope so hard, including with Xenogears, really pushing the possibilities of what the PS1 could do yeah. um, with their 3D style. And then of course they ran into a lot of development issues, but like, had they just maybe decided to tell this story without such a an intense a visual look, then you, we could get tons of games like this. Yeah. We could get tons of them, but they're all looking for that that peak, full budget, you know, high as as HD as graphics can be, <laughs> kind of triple A ness, and they're <laughs> anus. I just said anus. <laughs> that was funny. Okay, uh, but the 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 high high level. And instead, it's like they, it's like we aren't getting these kind of games. We could be getting tons of these kinds of games. I think I said in the past, if if Harvest Moon '64 just decided to stick with the pixel art graphics of their yeah. previous game, then it would have been Stardew Valley, yeah. right? They would have been able to do so much more with it and make it into such a cool game. And it is a great game. I love Harvest Moon '64, um, but like they had to push it in that direction, and that really limited what they were capable of doing. There, there really is something to be said about. Uh, the marketing power of a game that looks advanced, right? Yes. Like that. It's all marketing. That yeah. is, in many ways, to the executives mm -hmm. more important than like the content of the game. <laughs> I think so. I think so. But and, and marketing is visual, yeah. right? It's vi it's totally. Visual. What do I mean, people your see? First impression and that's what they want of any new game is to watch a trailer is for it to look at it and yeah. to look at it you're not you don't know you don't know the story because they can't give away the story because that would ruin the game you don't know the gameplay because you can't play the game because it hasn't been made yet you can just look at how pretty some of the cutscenes are and that gives you and based on that you decide I, whether or not you'll buy the game even aside from how pretty it is i feel like that there is a, a sense someone gets from watching something that looks great that the game is polished in all of its areas. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, that looks really polished. Yeah, yeah. Right? Even though that might not end up being true, there's a lot of bugs if it's a Bethesda game. or That part looks polished, <laughs> whatever they chose but, to show. But the marketing power of a very gorgeous product mm -hmm. gives a sense of trust that the yes. rest of it will also mm -hmm. contain the same polish, even though many times that's not the case. Almost always that's <laughs> not the case. So. Anyways, it's just kind of a reality of yeah. marketing. But I agree with you that, like, you know, in today's day and age with, like, the, the limitless almost, like, size of game, like, final game mm -hmm. files, right? If you, yeah. if you were to gigabytes for make one a, game. A, a pixel art game that was 100 gigabytes, just imagine the amount Dude, of content. it would be the best game ever. <laughs> it would be the biggest world. It would have so many different, you could have multiple endings and it would just carry, it would be crazy. Yeah. Now, that being said, what, what I had said a few minutes ago, having said that, this game is freaking beautiful and yes. I, this is the best graphics like of any <laughs> game ever. I freaking love it, it's so perfect, um, but Maybe that should be the standard, and maybe the N64 and the GameCube and everything else, and the PS2 should have 
those games should still be made in this type of what, like what um what's that uh, company that makes uh, Tri Triangle Strategy? And oh, Octopath. Um, yeah, the the HD two D. Yes, they call it. Now that just came too late, but if <laughs> if that keeps going the way that it seems to be going, and like Dragon Quest three is mm, getting a, that type that of treatment, remake, yeah. um, then I think we will start to see more games like that, and and these types of stories can be explored in a low budget fashion. You know, Tetsuya Takahashi didn't think he could tell this story without $50 million or however much. Probably a lot less than that, but yeah. he didn't feel like he could do it, you know? And 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 he could have. You just have to downscale another Hey, area. you just got to downscale, but then the game doesn't sell and all that stuff. Well, we'll get into that a lot more. Because yeah. there's, there's certainly a lot of nuance that goes into that conversation about managing the ambition, uh, especially within the the time constraint. Because Square kind of had a policy at the time, he talks about, where mm. you, you had you basically had two years maximum to make Max, at yeah. Square. Like, like max, 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 yeah. At Square, it was like, you get a year and a half or two years, and the mm. game has to be done, and that's just the cycle they had. That it was, was just how the it way things were done. Something tells me it's not that way anymore. No, it's definitely not. <laughs> but at the time, that was. But at yeah. the time, that was kind of the, that was just the, that was just the policy. And so it's like, okay, I have this much time, I have this much of an idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, how do we manage that? Yeah. That'll be a conversation for a later episode. Yeah. But I want to dive into um, a little bit of what Sakaguchi thought of Takahashi. I, th- I think this is really interesting. There's mm-hmm. a great interview. I've, I've sort uh, sourced it many, many times in many different videos. Um, it's an Iwata Asks interview mm-hmm. with Sakaguchi and Takahashi because oh, Xenoblade Chronicles was coming to ah, the Wii. that's right, that's and, right. Um, and so was uh, the last story. And so mm. it was like the first time the two of them had kind of met again in many, many years. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting conversation between them. And you can kind of, s- there's, there's a lot of hints here about some of this disagreement and turmoil mm. in- internally on this Super Nintendo Final Fantasy team. Mm. And Sakaguchi's trying to manage this while being like, but like... I'm in charge of Final Fantasy, <laughs> so we're doing it this it's way. It's my thing. Don't <laughs> stop bugging me. Right, and yeah. how he tried to balance being true to what he thought they mm-hmm. should do, and also, you know, aside from trying to manage or run Final Fantasy, being an executive of the yeah, company. for the whole company. And trying to allow his junior developers the opportunities to do what was fulfilling for them. Yeah. He's trying to And to feel like balance. they actually influenced the game. Yeah, he's trying to balance all of that, mm-hmm. and he was very conflicted. But I thought some of his comments here about uh, Takashi were, were really interesting. So a quote from him here. I, I like that he calls him Takachan as well. <laughs> uh, um, very uh, kind of a paternal uh, mm-hmm, way yeah. of speaking about him. But yes. So he says, back then, Takachan was the top graphic design man in the FF team. That's pretty high praise. That is. Um, you started work on the series with FF4, right? And Takahashi says, that's right. I joined when we were working on Final Fantasy IV. And Sakaguchi says, right. And I can still clearly remember being really taken aback by how realistic your design for the stone wall in the background was. I remember thinking, that's really something. So Takahashi, um, in, in the interviews I was reading about him, was really like, he was really trying to make his mark Mm. where he could on Final yeah, Fantasy, yeah. and he was doing it through graphics. And so these graphical leaps of mm. like the Super Nintendo Final yes. Fantasy pixel art versus mm. like say the NES mm-hmm. is in large part his influence. 
Oh, like yeah. Final Fantasy VI is perhaps, and even Chrono Trigger, which he was also on. Those two games in particular are perhaps two of the most beautiful Super Nintendo. Yeah, like pinnacle pixel art. Yeah, pixel yeah. art games I've ever seen. Square mm -hmm. was doing a great job with with Mana as well, mm -hmm, but yeah. like Chrono Trigger and and Final Fantasy VI just look so spectacular. The art is just so good. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy directing the graphics on those games. Mm -hmm. So he, in large part, is responsible for the look of Final Fantasy in, in terms of its pixel art on, on the Super Nintendo era. And Sakaguchi gives him high praise for that. Um, Takahashi also, uh, this is kind of just an interesting note, he redesigned the Magitech armor that appears in the opening credit sequence of FF6. So when they're actually walking through the snow and it's using like the mode seven, yes, uh, you know, so like the simulate three D, yeah, yeah, yeah. As they're like walking, like the coolest shot in video games at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you look at the Magitech armor in that shot versus the Magitech armor just in the normal sprites, mm. it's actually a, a, a different design. Mm. It's not exactly the same. Mm, I didn't notice. Um, and so Sakaguchi says, do you remember the Magitech armor that appears in the opening sequence of FF6? And Takashi says, yes, I do. And Sakaguchi says, now, I actually wanted to make it identical to the Magitech armor that appears in the game. But Takachan went ahead and drew it his own way. <laughs> and he really came up with something amazing. And Iwata, uh, you know, kind of cuts in and says, so you had no choice but to admit that, his, or that it was better than what you had originally had in mind. <laughs> And Sakaguchi says, right, and it hurt a little bit to admit it. I'd say this kind of thing was pretty common back then. So, yeah, like, there's actually kind of three different designs of Magitech armor. There's the Amano concept oh, art right, the right, concept, version, yeah. um, which they use, I think, as the basis for, like, the Final Fantasy XIV vehicle Magitech oh. armor you can run around mm -hmm. in, is the, which is the one I really like, which is the mm -hmm. Amano concept. But the one in the game itself is a little different. It, it kind of has um, arms that kind of come down and out with like big claws on them, like two like uh, like blades almost on them. No. And then it has like kind of two big tanks on the back. But the one that is marching through the snow during that opening title sequence is a little bulkier, um, like wider shoulders. Um, and it has more like exhaust pipes coming mm. off the back rather than those like tanky looking things. And so it looks more like a, a as a, a roided version, say, of like the Magitech armor right. that appears in the actual sprites, um, hmm. but it just it it gives that that shot just something a little extra that might not have been communicated in quite the same way with the exact design of the sprites. It's like the way they walk. There's like this there's like this big, heavy, impactful animation to it. Um, and so apparently he, he was adamant that they, they change it for that scene. So that's kind of Takahashi's background mm. and his influence on the Final Fantasy series. Um, and uh, anyways, he, he began to be, he, he, he was a little bit frustrated though, working on Final Fantasy. And he was clearly wanting to lead a project of his own or, or mm. have more storytelling ambition, right? Because while Final Fantasy stories were great and were especially like, um, for the time, they were really pushing things forward. Right. He clearly wanted to do something a lot deeper yes. than like what RPGs at that time were, which mm -hmm. really more or less did boil down to teenage heroes 
after surviving an incident where their, their hometowns yeah. were destroyed, of course. goes on a quest and kills God, that we've yes. come to understand as like the archetype or the typical plot outline of, of the that JRPG. Type of, yeah, of that style. Yeah. And so he wanted to do something in line with what he and his wife were talking about at mm -hmm. home. You know, like the, the, the ideas that, that stimulated him. Yeah. He wanted to incorporate that into his storytelling in a video game. Um, so you know what I think is crazy is how young he was. Yeah. Like he was really young when he started, um, when he became, rose to the director kind of level within the company. And he references this too in interviews later on saying, um, when people ask about why he ended up leaving Square Enix after all of this. And he brought up some things, but one of them was, yeah, and I was, I was just, I was really young, <laughs> is one of the like things that he brings up. And I think what he means by that is, I don't know, when you're younger, you want to make something of yourself. You th you got all these ideas and everyone's wrong and you're right and you can figure this out. And, you know, it, it's hard to make games and it's complicated and, and, you know, maybe you don't have all the answers either all the time. Mm -hmm. and, but he did bring up, he's, you know, the, the fact that he was so young as one of the, and he was really ambitious. He, he would talk about raising his voice in the meetings to his executives, being like, this is how it needs to be done. You should do it this way. And talking to people in Japan, his specifically, seniors, yes, seniors, yeah. talking to your seniors, talking to the, the people who are in charge of your employment, and speaking to them, now he probably didn't speak in a rude tone, but he did say that he was raising his voice. Um, and that's not something you do in Japan. Yeah. You, you respect, it's Confucian, you, you respect the elders, you, you don't talk back to them. Um, but he had no problem with raising his voice and, and saying what he felt needed to be done, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good, a good credit that maybe made him seem older than he was, where it's like, yeah. this guy can take charge, right? This mm -hmm. guy's not afraid to just step in and, and put things in their place. And I think that's one of the reasons he became a director so young. Um, but even, even after becoming a director, his ambition was not fulfilled. It was not satiated. <laughs> and he wanted to do more and more and more. And I think that's when he looks back and says, yeah, I was, I was really young. And that, that was... I think feel like that's part of what he means when he yeah. talks about how young he was, that he was rash and bold and he's, he's maybe a different type of developer now than he was then. Yeah, yeah. You, you learn through hard experience that it's yes. not, maybe not as easy as you thought it was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so in the interview uh, going on, Takashi says here, but back then Square had its own particular culture. On the one hand, there was a real desire to change things, while at the same time there was this sense that things should, uh, shouldn't be tampered with. Hmm. I would always worry about whether I was on the right track. And later like on, balance. Yeah. yeah. So he was clearly struggling with the, the culture of the company, or at least his place in it as being a junior developer. He mm -hmm. wanted something more and he wanted to he wanted control. change things and he wanted yes. to do it his own way. Yes, yes. Right? Sakaguchi went on to say, Oh, and there's another thing. I'd really like to work with you again. So this is much later in the interview. He's just turning to him in the middle of the conversation. And this was 2008, or when was this? This is probably 2012. When 20, this oh, later, okay. Maybe 2013 or something. Okay, huh. Um, he he, he kind of turns to Takashi and says, I'd, I'd really like to work with you again. And I, I like uh, his answer to that. He says, sorry for bringing this up by the blue. And Takashi says, well, it's been a while, hasn't it? About a decade. He doesn't say... Yeah, I would really like to work <laughs> with you too. Or like, 
oh man, that would be so great to get back together. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, it's 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 been a while, hasn't it? It's been it? a while, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, Iwata interjects and says, I'd like to see where how the two of you would play off of each other. And Sakaguchi says, I wonder, after a couple months, one of us might storm off, and that would be the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love, I love Sakaguchi. And Takashi says, or maybe if we could just make it through the initial period, then we'd stick it out to the end. Yeah. So clearly, they had a lot of disagreements. Early on, at right. Squaresoft yeah. on Final Fantasy stuff. Where it's like this all goes back to the beginning. And Takahashi wasn't in a position yeah. to really like have any authority to change anything. But clearly he wanted to, and yeah. they had disagreements. Um, I Iwata then commented on this and said, you're both saying the same thing, I notice. It seems you uh, know exactly how it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, And Sagaguchi goes on to say, when we're on the same wavelength, then we're a really perfect match. But I think that's why when we were at Square, where we both wanted to work on different things on different wavelengths. And Takashi says, you know, if we gave a completely different genre a try, it might end up working well. And Sakaguchi says, that might work a puzzle game, let's say. We could make the graphics more geometrical or uh, create some kind of simulation. That could be fun. So <laughs> clearly, when it comes to making RPGs and storytelling, mm -hmm. they were not on the same wavelength. They did not agree about you know what? how they should go about it. This goes along with another interview I read about with Takahashi, where he and this was in the same interview where people asked him why he left Square Enix. Um, he said that he he doesn't like to work with people who um, don't have the same vision that he does, yeah. and he didn't like executing other people's vision when he was a, a junior developer, mm -hmm. and he wanted to be the one in charge of executing the vision, right? Yeah. So he says, I don't want to work with people who aren't on the same page as me, basically, yeah. which is basically what Hinorobu Sakaguchi is saying here, yep. which is like, if we're on the same page, it'll be good, but otherwise, <laughs> like, we're just gonna butt heads and it will end up in the dirt. Yep. Um, but that was, in the same interview where he says, yeah, I was really young, he's also saying, it has to be done my way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, if I'm going to do it at all, it has to be done my way, and if other people want to get in the way and make it, then I'm out. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and he, he put his money where his mouth is, and he ended up leaving Square. But yeah. that's so funny. So we're get, we got a really, really headstrong person yeah. in, in Tetsuya Takahashi. Mm -hmm. Really bold. Really, really, like, forward-thinking, I think. But, but very much so in his own mind. Not so much willing to... Um, take into account what other people are saying so much, right? Mm -hmm. He's got his vision, which and is he can, he can put it into play, and, and he doesn't want to hear your, <laughs> your nonsense. <laughs> which is what Sakaguchi was dealing with at that time. His junior devs I'll bet you wanting to change when, things. I'll bet you when Sakaguchi says that, he might even actually be referring to Takahashi. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, like he's the one. When Sakaguchi says the junior devs, it's him. It's this guy, <laughs> the Xenogears yeah. guy. Yes. <laughs> and, and he kind of responded in the same interview to this, sen this sentiment about Junior Devs wanting to do things differently and, mm. and him trying to learn how to manage that, right? Yes, like, yes. And if I, I want them to have creative freedom, but I don't want them to change Final Fantasy. This is my thing. Uh -huh. But like, how do I do that, right? And so he says, I remember that back then the teams would always be dividing into smaller units. If someone displayed leadership skills, they'd be given independence for having their own team. At the time, uh, they would often ask me, is Final Fantasy all this company can let me create? And I used to worry about that. But Takachan had some really good people working for him, and I think it was the best that he got um, to head his own team. 
And then Takahashi mm -hmm. responds to that, <clears throat> and kind of this kind of rolls along with what we're saying, right? I recall going to see Sakaguchi-san and telling him that I was looking for a new challenge. That was when we were in the middle of Final Fantasy VII. And Sakaguchi says, yes, that's true. If I'm being honest, I felt a little lonely. One really clear memory I have is that no sooner had Takachan formed a separate team than his desk became completely covered in Gundam models and toy guns. And it was at that time that I realized he'd always wanted to work on this kind of thing. Hmm. And so it was like, oh man, like he had such a talented, such a talented team on, yeah. FF, on the FF Super mm -hmm. Nintendo games. And it was like, he sort of felt lonely or, or a loss when they, they all kind of decided they were going to start yeah. going. Because they were talented enough to lead teams of their own. Exactly. To tell their own stories and to do their own yeah. thing. And he was like, oh man, like none of them want to work with me anymore. They want to do their <laughs> own thing. Um, you know, what, what, a, what a, a loss. Hironobu Sakaguchi sounds to me like the kind of guy that could cultivate talent. Mm -hmm. That like... This is one of the credits that Nintendo has. How often does a Nintendo, one of the great de game de developer directors, leave to start his own studio? Yeah. It never happens with Nintendo. Mm -hmm. But how often at Square Enix has somebody gotten some prominence and then just left and started <laughs> their own thing, right? Yep. It's happened a lot, yeah. including the Tabata, the director of Final Fantasy 15. He's like, he directed that one game, and okay, he directed several games, but after this particular one, yeah. he was like, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm my own here. studio now. Particularly and Final Fantasy. They all kind of, once they do a Final yes. Fantasy, they're like, I want to do something else. I've been doing <laughs> something Fantasy. else. And I feel like I, I used to... I, I'm just thinking about it in different terms now. I used to um, criticize Square Enix for that. Like, that doesn't make much, you know. I, f I feel like they could be more like Nintendo, where they keep people in and mm -hmm. um, develop them within the team, and those people still feel fulfilled and all that. But it sounds to me like they actually do a pretty good job of cultivating leadership. It's just that the, these, these leaders... <laughs> want to do other things outside of Square Enix. They, they just have no interest in staying in yeah. and, and, and fitting into the mold. Yeah. So they cultivate these leaders to then leave and start their own companies, as, op as opposed to whatever the heck Nintendo does, which is cultivate these great leaders and developers who want to stay at Nintendo. Yeah. And I don't know what the difference is there, and maybe some people have some insight to that, and maybe you do, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. But it sounds to me like Hironobu Sakaguchi was one of those people who was really good at like giving people chances. I, I've heard the similar story with Tetsuya Nomura when yeah. he walked in talking about what things should be and then they said, hey, why don't you direct this new Disney thing we got going on? Mm -hmm. And like, okay, sweet. And he became a director because they could see that within him. He had clearly, he started with Final Fantasy IV as well yeah. and clearly showed promise yeah. and rose up within the company. It was probably around the time Takashi left that Nomura became the director that Kingdom Hearts kind of yeah. came into play. So maybe there was a, a vacuum there that Nomura filled that Takashi otherwise would have. Um, but they do a good job of developing talent, it seems, on leadership skills specifically. I mean, just think of think of all the people. You have Yasumi Matsuno. Yes. Te Tetsuya Takahashi. Mm. Um, even on the music side, Yasunori Mitsuda. Yeah, Mitsuda left at around 99-ish um, or so. Yeah. It's just crazy how many. Masato Kato. No, Nobuo Uematsu, yeah. he, he kind of doesn't still work within, Nintendo, yeah. or within um, Square Enix. There's so many of them. So many of them during this period that yes. left to freelance or start yes. their own thing or whatever. And yeah, it's kind of crazy. So it almost, it's like a dual sword. It's like they cultivated the leadership, but they still had some toxicity within the company that people didn't want to be at. Yeah. Right? And, 
and, and that and that's well the the the, the merger and the new of president coming in part, yeah. was a big part of it and you know they didn't lose everybody obviously like Kitase stayed and yeah. uh, and Nomura has stayed and things like that but although I tell you what when when we talk about <laughs> ta um, Tanaka um, and Nomura both being Tetsuyas right oh Takashi yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I meant, not Tanaka, yeah. Takashi. Um, but, uh, Nomura seems to me a lot more introverted, a lot less um, headstrong and, 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 and bold, and this has to be done this way. Um, I think he's pretty stubborn, but he is he more is. reserved. It's just he's more reserved about yeah. it, in which case he would stay at a company he doesn't want to be at grumbling the whole time, whereas Takahashi would be like, I'm out, screw this, we're done. Yeah. Um, and, and because what's happened to Nomura... <laughs> At, with Final Fantasy XV in particular, and mm -hmm. with the the FF7 remake even, and with other things before that, with Final Fantasy XIII, um, what was it going to be, Versus, and yeah. anyways, there's a lot of, so many people would have just left. Been like, yeah. hey, you guys are cool, but you're not letting me do what I want to do, and I'm leaving. Yeah, He's not doing that. And yeah. I don't know, we don't know what's going on with everyone's personal lives or whatever, but if Nomura had the personality of Takahashi, he would have left a long time a ago. Sooner. He would have left and said, I'm doing this whether you want me to or not. Uh, do you want this to be a Square Enix game or not? Like, yeah. that's the question. Okay, well, I'm leaving. I'm doing it on my own. Mm. Nomura doesn't seem to have that temperament. His personality doesn't seem to be this kind where he would do that. Otherwise, I think he probably would oh, not he, still be at Square Enix. Especially now, he has the clout to do whatever he I wanted know. to. I know. His name is one of the top devs in, the, in, in, in gaming. Yeah. He could go start his own studio. At any at any point, hey, he stays the square. So yeah, that's crazy. Um, so, anyways, Takashi gets his own team. This is around the time that he and uh, Soria Saga began developing, uh, or, or at least refining the concepts for Xenogears, uh, which, like we said, they pitched as Final Fantasy VII. Um, so, good quote here from Soria Saga. She says, uh, "Takashi and I originally submitted it as a script idea for FF7." While we were told it was too dark and complicated for a fantasy, the boss mm -hmm. was kind enough to give Takashi a chance to launch a new project. Then Takashi and I wrote up the full screenplay, which contained cutscene dialogues in final form. Thus, the project was born. Uh, but also, for a while, it actually was going to be a Chrono Trigger sequel as well. Yeah, they kind of had planned on it to be that. Yeah. And what happened with that? Why well, did that the, get rejected? Uh, again, higher-ups were kind of like, this just isn't... Oh, because Chrono Trigger is a little, <laughs> a little. Um, Chrono Trigger is more a, approachable, uh, right? Yuji Horii, uh, Yuji Horii, the Dragon, yes, uh, uh, Dragon Quest creator, mm -hmm. and uh, what's his name, the Dragon Ball artist. Oh, Akira Toriyama. Akira Toriyama. Yeah. it's a lighter, yes, setting. It's not so heavy. Now, it's Chrono a little more Cross, fun. Chrono Cross ended up kind of betraying that in a lot of ways. Yeah, but they. I can't even tell you how adamant when I was doing the research for Chrono Cross, how adamant the marketing mm. and like the the producers were. This is not a sequel to Chrono Trigger. <laughs> they keep they kept they continued to and say that. I wonder if that was part of why Chrono Cross is not a sequel to Chrono Trigger. Yeah, which is crazy because it's so reliant on mm. the story of Chrono Trigger for it. Anyways, it's weird. But apparently, uh, the higher ups were just like, this doesn't really fit with Chrono Cross, but. Sakaguchi in particular was very helpful in allowing Takahashi mm -hmm. the freedom to just develop it into his own IP, its own thing, which is when it became Xenogears. But for a while, it was going to be um, a, a, a 
sequel to Chrono Trigger. There are a few references to that. There's an NPC in the first village that you'll see who, um, who looks like Luca from mm, really? Chrono Trigger. Nice. And so, some things like that. And so like there's uh, some referential stuff you'll see in the game uh, you know, that kind of indicates, oh yeah, at one time this was meant to be connected mm. to Chrono Trigger somehow. Um, but I just wanted to, to make a note about this too. It, it's really important in, in terms of like understanding what, what the heart of Xenogears is about, it's really important to understand that the fact that this was written and conceived by like a husband and wife pair um, mm. is like integral to what the story of Xenogears is really about, like mm. at its core. And the fact that two people who bonded over shared interests but had very kind of different stories they wanted to tell finding a way to take two very different stories, all of the same kind of concepts, and like somehow make that into a comprehensible story, mm -hmm. like something that actually works, is astounding. It's crazy. <laughs> um, but it's also just, there's a, there's a symbol that you'll see in the game. Um, it's another parallel to Final Fantasy VII, another thing that seemed to have made it across. There's two sort of angelic figures with one wing. No, oh, um, really? A man and a woman. And it's kind of like the, mm. the major symbol of like the, the religion of Xenogears world. Um, and hmm. I've, I've made a video on this with Patrick Holloman, um, who, who was uh, featured in that video. Um, and so like, just keep in mind, the fact that a husband and wife pair wrote and created the story bleeds into like the need f for for wholeness between partners, right? In a way that's very integral to the story. It's very important to the story. It's, it 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 really gives it a lot of meaning. So, um, but storytelling aside, it seems that Takahashi really wanted to take an opposite approach to Final Fantasy even just in how the game was built uh, in 3D. Like, yes, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, he wanted to make the whole game in 3D versus doing 3D characters with flat uh, pre-rendered backgrounds. Pre-rendered backgrounds, yeah. Now, you and I have talked at length about how much we love pre-rendered backgrounds. and Yes, they're really good. They're really cool. They're really cool. We really like the parallax yes. that is built with them. And yes, and how, the creativity. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they built those backgrounds in 3D, but then they just took one rendered image of mm -hmm, it and just yeah. slapped a 2D image in the background. But what Takahashi wanted was to be able to rotate the camera and to, you know, give the player the ability to like look around and really like feel like they're moving through a 3D space. Um, and originally everything was supposed to be in 3D, but uh, it, it became clear that they were going to have to compromise a little bit on that. Yeah, the PlayStation wasn't quite capable of handling like that many well, polygons. Well, for the size of the game it was. Yeah. I, you know, like something like oh, I didn't uh, know Metal Gear Solid is a good example. Okay. Like Metal Gear Solid's all in, all in 3D, right? But Metal Gear Solid is like a, what, 10 hour game maybe? Mm. Xenogears is like an 80 hour game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like the amount of assets, trying to get that all to fit, the yeah. number of polygons and everything. It, anyways, the compromise had to be made that they would use 2D sprites for the characters and uh, a 3D world, but it's just another way in which he really felt 
differently about how Final Fantasy, or the direction of Final Fantasy was going, and he was doing an almost totally opposite approach to the way Xenogears was made. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Iwata ended up saying, when you left the FF team, what kind of thing did you want to do? And Takashi said, I wanted to see whether we could make a game entirely in 3D, not simply the event scenes. My initial motivation was to try to make games that achieved that. Iwata said, so you wanted to utilize 3D in a way that differed from its use in Final Fantasy VII. And Takashi says, yes, that's right. I felt that the company needed to develop knowledge on how to utilize 3D in a different way from that of VII. I wanted to make levels entirely three-dimensional and allow the player to freely alter the angle they view the game world at. And Iwata said, there's a real difference between simply being responsible for the graphics and coming up with entire game, con uh, game concepts and bringing all the necessary elements together. And Takeshi says, yes, indeed, there is, and I really had to feel my way at first. Um, but the problem was that his team, the team that they gave him, was made up of very young and very inexperienced yeah. people. Yeah, he said, like, well, I, I see you have it written here. It's the yeah. 90% of his team was like brand new, brand yep. new. And video games had not, video games were pixel art mm. up until the PlayStation. I know yeah. some computer games, maybe like an odd Star Wars game or something like Doom, I think had technically come out. There was some 3D stuff happening, like Star Fox. <laughs> but for the most part, it wasn't most most game developers did not have any 3D like Experience. knowledge and under their belt. Yeah, this was game making was a 2D thing, and he got a ton of brand new kids, and they were like, "Hey, we're making a game like no one's really ever made before," <laughs> and they're like, "Okay, what do I do?" Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, as he says here, 90% of my team were actually new kids who didn't know the first thing about 3D. Yeah. The most difficult thing was the psychological side, and this calls back to what Sakaguchi had to deal with, mm. with him. It was like being, it's like you wish for Having your to kids. cultivate, yeah, yeah. I, I hope you get a kid just like you, right? <laughs> so yeah. that you can know what I'm going through. It's exactly. basically exactly what happened to him. <laughs> Helping people adjust to the team, Absolutely. talking through their worries and concerns with them, and so on. It was then that I realized that Sakaguchi-san had been dealing with this kind of thing all along. And he says, honestly speaking, what happened is Xenogears as a project was staffed pretty much entirely out of new staff members, young staff members. Back then we had the direction of all projects take two years and that's what we need to get it done. And that's when we need to get it done. So on top of developing the game, we had to nurture and teach and grow these younger employees. Things like 3D were extremely new, which led to some delays in the schedule. It just wasn't possible to get everything done. So this leads us up to um, what even if you haven't played Xenogears, you've probably heard about its second disc. Mm -hmm. So the first, the first disc, there's, there's two discs of Xenogears. Mm -hmm. um, the first disc is, it plays exactly how you would expect a JRPG of that time to play. There's a world map, and there's towns, and NPCs, and quests, and uh, you know, random encounters, and it mm -hmm. just, it, you wander around and explore, and it, it, the adventure side of it is exactly what you would expect from a game at this time. Mm. Disc 2 has none of it. None of that anymore. Disc yeah. 2 is almost entirely <coughs> narrated by characters. Mm. It, it, it starts off with a character like sitting in a chair. It's a very abstract thing. And it's like, like in it's, outer space or something. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's like they're telling you about the dungeon that 
yes. you would have played otherwise, but which they didn't have time to make. And it's like, we descended into the dungeon and we did this and that. And then we arrived mm -hmm. at the boss and then you fight the boss. <laughs> and then it goes back to narration again. And this was something that threw a lot of people for a loop. It was like, what on yeah. earth is this? Like, why are they just telling me the game instead of me playing the game, right? Now, that's not to say it's entirely like that. Like, there, you still have, uh, like, the last dungeon is a dungeon that you actually play through. Mm. It's a, ugh, of all dungeons, it's not one of my favorites. But um, the point is that, like, the second dungeon, or the, the second disc is very infamous for this reason. It's like, what happened to the game? Um, and for many, many years, there was a lot of rumors about, you know, precisely, like, why that was. Mm. For the most part, pretty easy to intuit. <laughs> and the, the, the rumors they, they were more or less right. Um, yeah. But uh, Takashi gave an official answer uh, just a couple years ago um, in an interview with Kotaku um, when they were promoting Xenoblade Chronicles 2. He says... Um, basically, that they ran out of this time, like I just read, you know, that everything had to be done in two years then. Mm -hmm. And the executives, I would assume maybe Sakaguchi was among them, was trying to tell mm -hmm. him that you should just end the game at mm -hmm. the end of disc one. That should just be the end of the game right there. Just leave it off right there. And for anyone who's played the game, that there's no way you can end the story mm -hmm. at the end of disc one. That's right. nonsense. <laughs> it would be so unsatisfying an end to the game. I mean, I could see why somebody who maybe isn't like really intimately knowledgeable about what the story is about could right. see that as being like a good place to leave it off as a cliffhanger type of thing. Mm -hmm. But there's no way the story can end <clears throat> there. And he knew this obviously. So he says it was a rough way to end it and it, I felt like if we, uh, if we did that, then players would not be satisfied. So we had a proposal. I proposed that if we do disc two in this way, that it be the, uh, in the way that it turned out to be, yeah. we'd be able to finish with the current uh, number of staff and the current time allotted for the schedule and the remaining budget that we have. So um, yeah, it ended up being a, just a constraint of time. They just did not have time to finish the game the way he had thought. I'm going to talk about this a lot more with pacing and like how mm -hmm. to manage something so big when you yes. only have this much time, and that's yeah. definitely a director. He's a this is his inaugural. This was his directorial first thing, and debut. He, he got in over his head on his first project. Yeah, um, way over his head. It seems like yeah, way over his head. And I'd so, say even if this was Final Fantasy VII, he still the the same issues would have happened. Um, with the time schedule and stuff. Because mm -hmm. having more budget just means you can do more stuff. Yeah. And so um, it seems like he's the kind of guy who would have just wanted to keep doing more, more stuff. More, 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 more. <laughs> until it's like, okay, you're, we're way behind schedule. You've yeah. got you to finish this game. A, a similar thing probably would have happened. Because money's not the answer to everything, you know? Yeah, I think that's a pitfall of a lot of uh, young, inexperienced mm -hmm. directors. Yeah, yeah. They just Tons got this of huge story that they've been thinking out for 10 years. Yeah. And they're like, this is the thing. I'm doing it all right now. Yeah. And, and you know, like that, that fire, that passion, but then reality hits you. And it's like, oh, what do I do now? Like, <laughs> I cannot do this thing yeah. the way I thought I was going to do it. And if you, if, you know, it takes a couple of projects to, to get an idea of like, okay, yeah, what you're proposing 
that's not going to work given our schedule, given our budget, given our this. Mm -hmm. We have to amend that now in planning stage. Yeah. Uh, it, to where you can kind of foresee problems before they arise. And so obviously he didn't have that experience yet. And that explains a lot of why Xenogears ended up the way that it did on disc two. Um, this quote was something I wrote down. Uh, this is a total aside, not really related to the, the, the string that we're on in terms of development history, but it was something that I wanted to put in here because I'm seeing this a lot. I mean like a lot, a lot, a lot in online communities surrounding JRPGs. There's this like, this really um, intense kickback toward criticism like criticizing like something, kind. yeah. It's like well, you criticize this thing I like, and and, the, and yeah. it gets labeled as toxic. In in part, <laughs> it's um, these games mean so much to people. Yeah, and this is true of the anime community as well. There's there, you're identifying yourself with something that's so. I don't know. Video games have only been around for like forty years, right? Yeah. There, there's it's so new. And the humans didn't evolve with video games in mind. And video games, in some ways, is an exploitation of like the gambling instinct and the yeah. the typical um, visual, like the way you can just get lost watching a flashing. You watch a little kid put a little kid in front of a TV, and they're just like uh, just staring into space. The brain doesn't know how to how to deal with it, but at the same time, it's so much. It's so stimulating to the brain mm. that it kind of puts you in a sedative state. Now, video games are a little different because they're a little more active. You're you're actually doing stuff. Um, but that just makes the immersion all the more, like, immersive. What's the word? <laughs> all the more deeper. You yeah. just you're so so deep into this stuff that like it just it has so much meaning to you, and yeah. you literally spent your life doing the things of the game, not just watching it like a movie. You're doing it, mm -hmm. and you 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 in some you feel senses of accomplishment, and you you finish things, and and. The, the stories that are well done, as I think a lot of games in the 90s specifically were so well done, that it means so much to people that it's, it is difficult for them to handle any criticism whatsoever, um, which, which is great because I love that games can do that for people. But it's, it's harder when you're trying to take video games seriously, like very seriously, like yeah. we are, and be very critical and, and almost academic about our approach and how we analyze this kind of stuff um, to it almost makes it harder for us to do that yeah. uh, when people have that kind of response to any kind of criticism. Um, games, I think, in order to be taken more seriously, need to, need to be analyzed and scrutinized seriously. Yes. And in order for us to do that, we, we need people to be okay with, with that happening to something that they love, right? Well, That's how films became a scholarly, you know, like, experience for people that, you know, they, they, it's, it's the, through critique and analysis that you know things can have that kind of meaning um, on a societal level, not just a personal level. Yeah, it's a maturation process yes. for the media, yeah. right? So you grow up and you you got acne on your face, <laughs> and you go, you go through that weird phase, right? But that's where all the fun moments are. That's where your life, your formative yeah. years, right? Yeah. But it's awkward, yeah. and you don't want you don't want people to point <laughs> at how how weird and awkward you are or it is, right? <laughs> but at some point, you do grow up. Yeah, you do stop being the weird kid who doesn't know about himself and is unsure and, and has acne and is, <laughs> you, you eventually grow up to, to become a, a mature adult that can just deal with it and, and yeah. that, that is, is more confident. Yeah. Sure. And so, yeah, like, I've just, I've just noticed 
that, I mean, there's, there's certainly two sides of this coin. There's a lot of criticism that isn't really criticism. It's hate. It's this game it's sucks. Trolling. <laughs> yeah, it's Yeah, it's when people just try to try to poke and prod and hurt yeah, people. And, and yeah, and like, obviously, that's not what we're trying to do. Yeah, and, don't do that, guys. And Come like, on. that's, you know, that, that is annoying when people yes. do that. At the same time, we don't want to go too far in branding or labeling that is toxic that anybody mm -hmm. who comes in with a good faith piece of criticism mm -hmm. is labeled as being toxic or yeah, a get rid of the community. Yeah, get out. You get out of here. Yeah. Like we can't have we can't have any of that. You're too offensive. Yeah, the negative um you're you're get you get away with that negativity. Because criticism is not negative. I, I don't feel sure. like it is. Sure. It's so, some of that depends on your motivation for the critique, yeah. right? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to disparage other people? Or are you doing right. it because it's something that you'd like to point out because it's something that you hope can be amended in future projects or can be I I have know. the worst analogy in the world, but I'm gonna use it. <laughs> Kids got acne, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's got a pimple on his nose. Now you can make fun of him for having a pimple yes. on his nose, and 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 he will go take care of the situation, but he's gonna feel real bad about himself. Or you can kind of like more constructively point out in a polite manner, you got a pimple on your face, you might want to and, take care and of that. Here and, is and that will be more meaningful. A medication. And here you go. Here's here's what I actually use solve because everyone this. deals with that. Yeah. yeah, that is. They're two <laughs> different worlds, yes. right? And and of of how you deal with that problem, and yes. you know the internet just kind of brings out the worst in people sometimes. It certainly and they'd does. much rather laugh at someone who has a pimple, sure, or who fell down the stairs, yes. than than help. You know? Sure. And so what what I hope we can do is separate a a good faith piece of criticism from someone just hating on something or or you know being disparaging of it or making fun of it. I I, I yeah. would I would hope that that is very clear on uh, from what we're doing here from versus like online trolls right now yes. that being said the whole reason i bring this up is because sometimes we get kickback from people who don't like the fact that we're criticizing stuff or sometimes and we do get a little too lighthearted about our crit yeah, criticism that's true too and we are making fun of things that's true too it's all in good fun generally speaking yes but but it's true sometimes and, we will and laugh when at that things. happens you know uh Hopefully, yeah, point, point it out. Here's, here's we, something we that, I, that. I, I thought the other day, right? Like, just a thought that came to me. Quote me if you want, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't make a habit of being wrong. But when you are wrong, make a quick habit of admitting it hmm. and of correcting yourself, right? So, like, that's, that's my goal with this is, like, if I am wrong, I want to quickly amend that on the next episode. I want to correct myself. I want to make sure... And then mm. that's kind of what we did on the last episode with Near, because with Nier, we right. aren't the biggest Near scholars. <laughs> yeah, so there's stuff that, that we got wrong many times. Yeah. There was some stuff that I said that I could have worded better. I'll correct that. Uh, that's what I mean by doing this in good faith. Yeah. But I, I I say this as a precursor to this series. I am going to criticize the fetch out of this game <laughs> because it it merits it. Like. It's a very rough game around mm. the edges. There's a lot of problems with it. It is not a smooth experience playing Xenogears. But here is a quote from Tetsuya Takahashi. Uh, he says, 
uh, it, it kind of in response to, I think Iwata was saying like, you know, how does it make you feel that, you know, the, the game was received so well and there's all these people who, you know, really love it or whatever. He says, you know, yes, of course, you know, I like that. But actually there are times when I want people to be more critical. I'm actually the type of person who gets fired up by negative energy. Dude, he is a red personality. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He is like uh, a headstrong personality right there. So don't take criticism of Xenogears personally. I'm, we are not here to tell you that this thing that has been a formative, life-changing experience for you sucks. Because it doesn't. Xenogears is a, a, a masterpiece. It's and amazing. I can already tell that I'm going to like it. And I love it. Yeah. But my goodness, is it a difficult game to get through. Because <laughs> Good it's, to know. It's not super polished mm -hmm. in every area. And yeah. there's a lot of ways that it could be improved. And some people take that and they say, they kind of work that into the game's theme about the fact that it is rough and it's not perfect and all these things is actually really uh, good because it like goes alongside the fact that the game explores broken things and... Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, and, you sure. Know, and but, so... Well, okay, that can only take you so far. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyways, there's going to be a what, lot of though, criticism. You know what, though, the fact when he says, I'm, you know, there are times when I want people to be more critical, um, that is the creator of the game, right? I, and it, we, we will, we'll, we're going to do our best to not be hypercritical and to yeah. be just, just uselessly critical, yes. right? But at the same time, I don't think that um, y you in yeah. quotes, anybody should take more offense to criticism of this game than the person who made it. Yeah. And the person who made it says that they don't get super offended um, by the uh, critique. Yeah. And they welcome it. And it's and important. And so you, you, maybe you should, you know, internalize that and maybe you shouldn't be more offended than the person who made it. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's just, <laughs> throw that and out And it's, it's an important part, like we are saying, to the maturation of the, genre, uh, of the genre and of the medium. We want to see video games be yes. taken seriously like great classic literature and like great mm. classic film. And ignoring glaring flaws yes. is not the way to do that. It's not the way to yeah. do that. If, I yeah. think all of us can relate to the fact that there's still, even to this day, from people who, are, who have not played video games, whether it's your parents or politicians mm. who have no understanding of what this medium offers. Right. Talking about it as if it's this big waste of time, as if there's like, it's not really that important. Mm. I remember there's some, <coughs> some research I did for the Final Fantasy IX retrospective I'm redoing, where even some of the developers on the game felt that way about video games. Really? And it wasn't until they received fan mail about people who were that on the verge of committing suicide. And then mm. they played Final Fantasy IX and they saw the way that Vivi dealt with existential mm. crises and, and uh, uh, even like the villain of the game. Uh, Kuja. Kuja and, mm. and stuff. Like it gave them a new insight about the sanctity of life. Right. Final Fantasy IX had that deep of an effect mm. on a person who was about ready to kill themselves. And they realized, holy crap, that's what we're doing here. That's the level of the thing we're making. Video games have this level of mm. profound human content in them. And they have had that for decades and decades and decades. Mm. But if we want 
more people to understand that, then we've got to take care of some of these things yes. <laughs> that make <clears throat> them hard to play or make them difficult to get into mm -hmm. and try to not not say that this podcast is going to be the resolution to that, but it's one piece yeah. of a larger community sure. working together to help the developers understand how to mature the medium and how to get it to a place where it can be taken seriously the same way that classic literature is, right? Hmm. So there you go. Now, um, this game stirred a lot of controversy at the time that it came out. And uh, I've had some problems with this, with some people I've debated about like Final Fantasy Tactics story and the way mm -hmm. it sort of insensitively references Christianity and mm -hmm. whether or not it's, a, right. it's some sort of commentary on whether Christianity is evil or not. Mm -hmm. Xenogears has a lot of room to be misunderstood in this way. <laughs> it, it's, it's reference to religion. Um, was seen as quite problematic by a lot of people, and in particular Richard Honeywood, who localized the game, was yeah. very afraid yeah, that it was going to this. be misinterpreted so, by Christians in uh, America yeah. who would be very outraged by it. There was initially supposed to be uh, more people helping with the localization of the scenes. Yes. They all left. jumped ship and <laughs> left. And it was basically just Richard who stayed on to localize this entire game. But the people left, I think one of the, in some of, one of these interviews somewhere, somebody mentioned, oh, I don't want a, a fundamentalist Christian extremist blowing up our offices because yes. we worked on this game. Yes. And this was, this was late 90s, right? And mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly where he would have gotten that idea from, but that this is the level that we're talking about here. It's a blasphemy, complete blasphemy. And even Richard Honeywell, who's religious, mm -hmm. he said that he, um, in participating with his religious groups and circles, there were people as upon understanding what he was working on, he probably told them, um, who told them to not to not work on it. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, don't do this, dude. This is this is bad. This isn't good. Yeah, his, and his, he was his, like, uh, nah, I think it's fine. I'll hold it out. But Richard Honeywood was religious and he and he stayed on. And I don't well, know. Well, because, okay, and this is, this is the important takeaway. Well, I think he was even his pastor or elder or something like that. He at, said elders at um, his at his church or whatever. Yeah, whatever. We're, was, we're kind yeah. of like concerned about mm -hmm, what yeah. he was doing, what exactly. he was working on. Yeah. Right? So it has. I think most people watching this are probably from America, right? I, I'm sure we have some mm. people from Europe and Richard was other from Australia, too. by the way. Yeah, he was from Sydney. But you know, a, a culture that was traditionally Christian. Right? Yes. Yeah. So a lot of people are at least. In a, in, a, in a basic way, familiar, Christianity had some basis on your understanding of morality. Oh, very That sort likely. of thing. Yes. We understand God and Jesus and this, mm -hmm. thing, you know. So having that foundation, I guess, to your culture and coming in to hear what you will, just the word God, what the word God means to you as a person who grew up in this culture is quite different from a person who grew up in a Japanese culture. Mm -hmm. So there's there's just a lot of room to misunderstand what the references of Xenogears mean. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to point out that for the most part it was Gnostic teachings and Jewish mysticism and Jewish, like, really ancient Jewish commentaries on the Old Testament mm -hmm. that are the basis 
of Xenogear's religious or theological reference, referential material. Hmm. This is not in any way, shape, or form a commentary on Christianity <laughs> at all. Okay, so we're talking about like super ancient stuff, mm -hmm. uh, religious references here. Yeah, and there will always be, religions have a lot in common, and religion in general is just such an important part of human life that it makes its way into a lot of these games. Maybe some games intentionally want to take down Christianity. That's fine, and I haven't really played this game, but I do know that every, like, Harvest Moon had a church, right? Yeah. Like, like religion in general, you, you can't comment on human life while ignoring religion, yeah. or the human experience while yeah. ignoring religion. And so these themes are going to be present, and um, I, I just, I don't know that it necessarily means just because the theme is present and because maybe some of the, I'm guessing some of the religious people aren't so great in this game. <laughs> well, that it means that he thinks that, that it's all that way. Right? Yes. And even if he thinks that way, it's, it's, um, it's just part of telling a story that's, that's big and epic and that incorporates all of humanity. You have to include religion in that story. Otherwise, you're missing something. Well, JRPGs were still fairly new at mm. the time this game came out, right? So, Less than 2% um, of Japan is Christian, by the way. Yeah. So some of this might even be an outside influence that, oh, let's include this, but it's like Link from Link to the Past. He had a cross shield. Mm -hmm. Or no, from the first Zelda game. I don't yeah, think from Link the first the Zelda game, yeah. Um, I don't think they were intending any Christian commentary in yeah, The Legend of Zelda, that but that was a symbol on a shield, and that's just the way it looked. And from the outsider's perspective, it was like, oh, this is... This is a thing. Let's put it oh, in Oh, is Link a crusader? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Would be silly. Yes. And so, but JRPGs were still pretty new. Now it's almost a trope that you kill God in JRPGs. It's a joke, yeah. And but anime, at this yeah. time, if your mom, who's, you know... That's the biggest, Baptist, that's the hardest part. Yeah. Here's that you're playing a game where you kill God... Yeah. She's going to be pissed. She's going to take it back to the store. And this is why Nintendo censored the crap out of mm. Final Fantasy games on that's, the SNES. They took so out the Judeo-Christian symbols and mm. references. They, they changed yes. spell names yep. because they were trying to avoid offending people. But I like, did read about some of the localization. The, in, the original name for... The final the boss. God, the final boss was, was Yahweh. Yahweh. Yep. Which is Jehovah. Yes. <laughs> And, and and it's just translated to Deus in English, despite yes. the fact that we all know who Jehovah was. Like, yes. but he was like, "Hey, we're just we're going to use a more obscure Latin word yes. than the actual literal name of God." <laughs> <laughs> but in Japan, they were like, "Why? Why not? Why not? Hey, Jehovah, Yahweh, let's do it." Yeah, it's so funny. So, anyways, but but you have to understand that the way that Yahweh was seen by Gnostics is very different. Mm -hmm from the way that Christians view sure. Yahweh, right? As the benevolent, yeah, exactly. The God we're not killing, I think this is the point you're making. The God we're killing at the end of this game, sorry, spoiler alert, I guess, <laughs> even I knew that, I haven't played the game, is not Jehovah. Is exactly. Not the, is not the Christian God you read yes. about in the Bible. <laughs> yes, the God in the of New Testament Gears world is not the God of Christianity. It's, yeah. it's mythology is not, it's not, referencing Christian <laughs> theology at all. You are yeah. not killing the God of Christianity. You are killing the Demiurge, which is a concept we will get into a lot more okay. later. But the, in, in Gnosticism, there's this idea that like physical things are sort of inherently 
I don't know if evil is the right word, mm. but um, that they are corrupted. Sure, yes. And yes. spiritual things are pure. Yes, that is. And so yeah. God in Gnostic teachings, the benevolent good mm. is a spiritual being. But God in physical form is a corrupted thing. Mm. So the demiurge, mm. which is what is referred to as Deus, Xenogears is, is the god <laughs> yeah. that is evil and that mm-hmm. is the the antagonist of the game, right? Um, whereas, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid that for spoiler reasons, but we'll, we'll see later mm. on that there's a different being, right? That okay. is spiritual in nature, and and so the the the, the, the 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 religious content they're referencing is not what you're likely familiar with but one more thing because i mentioned yahweh being the name of the god in japanese um they did actually change it so richard honeywell did convince them honeywood honeywood is his, is his name honeywood yeah. he did convince even the japanese people to change the the name in japanese yes. to um, it's Yabe, which is funny because it's, it's Yabai, yes, kind of Yabai means like danger or be careful. Oh, Yabai, Yabai. Um, but in Kansai dialect, in like Osaka-ben, mm. they pronounce their I sound a lot of times if they're being slang or hip or like the gangster talk. They say just an E, just a straight up like a long E sound. And they say Yabe, Yabe, Yabe. And it's a way, it's like a cool Kansai way of saying like, oh, look out, oh, yabe, yabe. But it's the word is yabai, but they call the name in this game of the god is yabe. Yeah. Which also means danger, but it's also kind of like a slangy way of saying danger yeah. that they only use in like Osaka, basically. And they all had so a good that's laugh about funny. that. Yeah, when yeah. When Honeywood suggested changing and it so, to that. And so they did it, right? Because yeah. he's like, this isn't Jehovah, you guys, come on. <laughs> like, oh, what, what's the big deal? Yeah. And Richard having the foresight, being like, hey, you're already going to get in trouble. Don't call him Jehovah, or don't call him <laughs> Yahweh. Just don't do it. And they, he convinced him. So that, yeah. I think that's a good thing that he convinced him that because um, it's uh, hard enough that you're killing God or a God of sorts. It would be even worse on that Baptist mother if it was literally <laughs> named the name of God in the Bible. Yes. A little too so, much. Yeah. Anyways, that's just sort of a, a basis for realizing that this is not... <laughs> some kind of like criticism or commentary on Christianity. Xenogears is not trying yeah. to do that. So just keep that in mind as your point. Now, it may offer commentary, just w- is it, would it be correct to say it offers general commentary on, on religion maybe like as a whole? Blind faith. And, and the way that religion can be corrupted as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in general? Yeah. And that's how I feel about Final Fantasy Tactics as well. It's like okay, yeah. clearly religion, any, anytime it, it is at the height of its power like it was in the Dark Ages, mm-hmm. right? Men are corrupt. Very and they so. <laughs> use the yeah. organization to exert their power yes. and to subjugate mm-hmm. others. It, it's not a, it's common. not a comment on the like the spiritual principles of the religion, mm-hmm. but more on the men who use it exactly. and that to makes more dominate sense. other people. Yeah. And so it's As like a tool. Yeah. You know, anyways, that's that's the the problem with religion isn't maybe the heart of its teachings. It's it's the way that the leaders use their position to manipulate, to yeah. um, you know, control. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is always in people. Right. Yes. And it's like yeah, like, obviously ancient religions. You can, as science 
continues to mm. <laughs> you know advance like we can see that what they taught about things is clearly not correct right but like spirituality is still something that is very very important to a lot of people and like that's not what they are trying to criticize in final fantasy tactics or in xenogears they're trying to they're trying to make a commentary about blind faith about corruption yeah. about these types of things right so Fair enough. okay but this leads us into Richard Honeywood a little bit. This dude is uh, so cool. He's a beast. <laughs> He's a beast. I really like him a lot. I like his philosophy on localization and on translation. Mm -hmm. He was really young at the time, and he had done some work on some, some other projects, but Xenogears was like his first chance to really make a name for himself, mm -hmm. to do something, to be like a director. Something bigger, something like yeah, this. yeah. And it was a horrible experience for him. But he was key after that in changing the entire approach to how Square did localization yeah. afterward. Like, yeah. up to that point, they didn't really see it as important. Or, like, it's like, we'll make some pocket yeah. change in right. other territories. Yeah. Uh, I think Final Fantasy VII is what changed yes. their, their perspective on how much money they could possibly 100%. make. 100%. Yeah. And this Xenogears was one of the next, or if not the next big game that Square Enix released after Final Fantasy VII. Probably just one of. I bet you there was some other game in between there. Um, but where they were probably, this would, this would have been the first moment where they were open to the possibility mm -hmm. of spending more money on localization <laughs> right. in general. Right. And so he basically, he basically just changed the whole way that they do it after that. Yeah, it includes now, it includes, well, he didn't do it, after Xenogears. Yeah. So Xenogears was all done by him. Yes. The whole game just him. But after that, he was saying, you guys, you almost, you almost killed me. <laughs> so having <laughs> nearly died, I want to inform you that this is not how you localize things. This is not acceptable, man. <laughs> this, this is not so acceptable. You've got to have things double checked. You've got to have somebody cross-reference and you need to have other people on the team ensuring that things were translated properly. Yeah. You can't just have one person do everything straight, one shot, and then it's done. And we need a, a better multi-encoder for... Yes, he was programming. <laughs> he was programming while he was um, yes. translating. He yes. was doing everything. So he didn't have access to, say, like a spell checker with the yes, software he right. was using, with the encoder he was Because he was using. putting it right into the game. And yeah. he had, had hotkeys that were like Chinese symbols mm. to try to... It was just such a mess, <laughs> right? Such yeah. a mess. And like this is why Final Fantasy VII's translation is as shoddy as it is. Yeah. <laughs> because the of basically the tools they were using to translate and to to input the text was just so limiting. Mm -hmm. Um like what we've talked about in the past, they had a limit to the number of characters yeah. that yep. you could use per line. But like in Japanese you can say way more in one line than oh, you can in English. Oh yeah. And this is why Ted Woolsey had to cut his Final Fantasy VI translation like in half. He had to start over, but he was like over the limit of characters like by the every double. Time. Yeah. So it was a huge Because the number problem. of the action events where you hit the A button to go to the next screen was, was pre-programmed before the programmer started. Yeah. You, ha you can't do more than that. You'd have to reprogram it into the game. So I have some good quotes from him, uh, Richard Honeywood. Since my first major role as a translator and localization director was on Xenogears. Xenogears was pure hell, but it revealed that they really what really needed to be done for proper localization. 
From that project on, I contributed to change Square's approach to localization. For instance, we made the policy to move booths uh, so as to be with the dev team whenever possible. Oh, good. In order to improve access to communication. Uh, we also brought in the system of full, uh, brought in a system of full-time editors. Uh, basically, most of the factors that make Square Enix's localization different from other companies' methods came out of the experience of this project. It also created respect uh, that helped establish a fantastic working relationship with our, uh, with some of our dev teams. So, um, we've talked about this in other podcasts before. Right, like direct translations versus... Right. Yeah. Transliteration or yeah, even yeah, like yeah. trying to be as accurate as possible to Japanese mm -hmm. when you translate into English and why that's not a good idea. Yes. Japanese is a very, very different language from English. We've talked many, many times about the reasons why. Um, it's a high context language, whereas like you have to basically understand yes. the context. It's inferred. Because they infer yeah. a lot of things mm -hmm. that they don't say. Mm -hmm. And so... Yep. Sometimes they, they leave out the subject. <laughs> mm -hmm. Sometimes they leave out the verb in a sentence. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's, if you, it's a very advanced high context language. It's very hard for, yes. it's very hard to learn for like English speaking people. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> right? Um, also the syntax is backwards and yep. there's all kinds of things that make it tough. So, you know, um, I think and we kind of touched on this a little bit with like someone who's maybe like at an amateur or maybe a novice level in their learning of Japanese, you have kind of a yeah. Dunning-Kruger effect where when you're first, <laughs> yes. when you're first learning yes. something, you get this high level of confidence. Mm -hmm. You start to recognize, oh, I know that word. I know that word. Oh, I know what they're saying. And you hear the word, but you didn't see it in the translation. And you're like, oh, they got it wrong. Yes. You start <laughs> to think you know better. Yes. Right? And you start to think, oh, that's not right. They, they said that wrong. I know what they really said. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas those who are... Sometimes that is helpful to know what yes. the real trans Japanese is. But usually you just need, you don't need that. That's yes. not usually that important. People who are on the more expert level with their understanding of the languages, you know, between Japanese and English, or I guess any language you're trying to translate, will know that there are cultural differences, all kinds of language differences that, that make it so that if I want to communicate this idea, in English, I have to say it differently because you just won't get it if these words are transliterated over. It's like the meaning will be lost. The culture doesn't understand that reference. The culture doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, they, they just won't get it if I say it like that. So I really like his approach. And he has a quote here where he says, with on-screen text, uh, the purpose of localization, right, is to convey the meaning as best as you can within the text limitations as well as to localize uh, so that it's completely natural to your target audience. Knowing what to change and what to keep is a talent in itself. In the case of voiced dialogue, the major consideration is that you have strict time limits, and if the team isn't going to re-render the lip movements for each language, we have to try to uh, lip sync the words to mm -hmm. fit the original mouth movements. It's a painstaking process as you have to try and get the meaning across without or within those limitations. Yeah, that's really hard. <laughs> really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, the, the job that these people have, especially in modern translations where mm. there is lip sync. With the lip syncing, yeah. It's so, so hard. Yep. Um, I don't remember if I wrote this down, but I do remember in a conversation somewhere he was talking about the fact that lip sync 
is something that's an expectation almost more exclusively to the West. Like, they don't really care about lip sync very much in Japan. That's why anime is <laughs> it, how it is. Yeah, it's just like three cells uh, yes. of a mouth, but it's not actually synced yes. to what they're saying in Japanese at all. Right, in America, <laughs> it's gotta be it's gotta be. They exact. try to try to match it perfect. Yeah. Because for and he said maybe it's because they they watch a lot of dubbed movies in Japan and and, and they just don't care as much. They, they don't care as much because they watch American movies. Yeah, so everyone does, but mm-hmm. Americans don't watch <laughs> anything but American movies either, and so we expect it to match. Yeah. So, anyways, like the fact that in the West it's like expected that the lips match the voice mm-hmm. makes is like an added limitation that makes it so hard to yeah. localize these games. But um, here's another quote here. Uh, when I first joined Square about eight years ago, well, at the time that he did this interview, obviously now it's been decades, but localization was an afterthought. No one expected the games to sell very well and the foreign language versions were done on the cheap to gain a little bit of pocket money while the team prepared to move on to their next title. There was only one person serving as a go-between with America at the time and no in-house translators in Tokyo. A single translator in our U.S. office or outsourced to European languages would be given fixed fonts and restrictive letter limitations due to on-screen layout and memory concerns and asked to rush out a translation with limited checking and rarely any changes. The teams even forced the translators to write European languages in double-byte Japanese fonts, replacing European letters with obscure kanji. <laughs> this, <laughs> this wasn't because they were lazy. They just didn't know how to handle European letters. Final Fantasy VII was probably the turning point as it showed the company that foreign language could sell huge numbers. Um, he goes on to say, That said, I can tell you which project was the hardest going, uh, going for me personally. It was Xenogears. The game was ambitious even for Japan. It was the first major title I had to manage and translate myself. Because of its controversial content and the linguistic conceptual challenges it presented, the original translators assigned to it quit or asked to be assigned to other titles. When it went over schedule, I ended up having to not only direct, but translate and program as well. Heck, I even burned the master discs. That's crazy, by the Richard way. Richard Honeywood burned <laughs> for, the master for discs America. for yeah. the English version of the game. That's crazy. What the fetch? <laughs> I, think, I think he was having so many problems trying to communicate uh, that Hiromichi Tanaka, producer, mm. was like, yeah, why don't you just go ahead and program? Uh, don't just don't worry about that. Like you can program, just do what you can. And if like there's something you can't do, then contact us. Otherwise, like you just do it. <laughs> well, they're lucky that he was even capable. Of doing I know. That. It's just like holy crap. <laughs> they just didn't care. They no. did not care about the foreign language versions. That's they didn't crazy. think it would sell. They didn't. They didn't right. give fetch. Says the team basically left it in my hands as they went on to their next game. I worked around the clock, sleeping in the office for months to bring it to a shippable state. At the same time, I had trouble with my own religion when the elders heard mm-hmm. about the content of the Japanese version. Yeah. As a translator, I wanted to respect the game creators and keep the content as close as possible to the original. Even the non-controversial parts were hard to translate, all those scientific concepts and philosophies. I look back and wonder how we ever finished it. I guess my naivety at the time was a blessing in disguise, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been a totally different game. At the same time, Xenogears was a catalyst for changes as it showed what changes were needed. After that, we, we added assistants and editors to improve the quality. It was the first game where the localization members sat in with the development team and worked with them. 
After that, I thought the Xenogears team would consider me a failure and wouldn't want to work with me again. Instead, it seems I gained their respect as they asked me uh, back for both Chrono Cross and Final Fantasy XI. And they have been even more cooperative and enthusiastic with each project we localize. Good. So there are some, you will notice, some localization, some funky things with mm -hmm. localization. There's some funky I've, text I've in this I've seen some examples game. before. There's yeah. some, some parts that you kind of laugh at it. Mm. Uh, I remember we did, a, we did a live stream on the channel once for, yes. um, it was actually for Legend of Dragoon. Yes. <laughs> and we were just laughing, laughing and laughing and laughing at something because it, um, it was like uh, the character came to a locked door or something. Oh, yeah. And, and the text was, oh, God, it's locked. <laughs> and it just sounded so funny, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. Now, now clearly, like, it, with, like, a, a more basic maybe understanding of the English language, it's like, mm. why is that so weird? What would have been more appropriate is, oh, damn, it's locked. Sure. Instead of, oh, God, it's locked. Because yes. that just gives it more of like a whining, almost like exasperated, <laughs> like, oh, God, it's locked. And instead of like, you know, kind <laughs> of like a, a, an expression of frustration, like, damn, it's locked. That little change mm. in that one word changes how it lands. Because he says it multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> it totally changed how it lands. Yes. And it came across as really funny because it didn't feel yeah. appropriate to the situation at all. Xenogears is filled with that kind of thing, and Honeywood is obviously a great translator. Yes. It's just a matter of time constraint and being the only person and no one checking his work and yeah. like working with this ridiculous encoder and um, like all of these problems and t just fatigue, like getting two or three hours of sleep every night, sleeping in the office, yeah. so much stress, it's like, a freaking miracle the dude did what he did with the I game. I know, yeah. But there are some funny translation right. errors and problems. Um, and we will go over those, you know, when, when the time comes. But yeah. we don't want to make it out to be like the game is, like the, the translator, Honeywood, it was a bad translator or something. Mm -hmm. It's the circumstances. But it, it has its share of problems and he's aware of them. Uh, another interview, he says it was a project from hell. Translators walked off of it. Uh, it was too technical, there was religious content. Uh, it was a game where at the end of the game you basically kill God and a secret thing back then, they actually called it Yahweh. We went into this. Yes. Um, so yeah. So anyways, I mean right at the very first scene in the game, there's a translation error that's pretty big. <laughs> really? <laughs> but see this was done by another person before oh, okay. Richard Honeywood got there. Oh. And that person had no understanding of the full context of the story. Okay, sure. And Japanese, mm -hmm. it's hard to differentiate between his or her, or whether it's plural or singular. Yes, or absolutely. Because it, it, it's a high context language. Yes. So they translated it as they. But it is not plural what is attacking <laughs> the ship in the beginning at all. So it's, it's completely wrong. Right. <laughs> but they had already sent this out to the animation team that made the anime cutscenes, uh, and they had so. already voiced it. So they can't just like reschedule Maybe. the English voice actor to come in and rewrite that right. again. It was already done. <laughs> so, you know, there's these kinds of problems that they don't have now that they had to deal with at the time because they didn't expect the game would sell in English anyways. Mm -hmm. So anyways, another thing I want to bring up about differences between Japanese and English is a, a, a language concept called Aizuchi. 
Uh, I talked about this a little bit with you. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, Izuchi, and I think a lot of people when, when you hear this, how do I just go to the, there we go. Um, when we explain this, I think you're going to go, aha, I actually have seen that a lot in the anime I watch you and would. in the games I've played. You would. It's everywhere in Japan. It's, it's, uh, it's all over. It's just part of the Japanese language. But essentially, um, Aizuchi are like frequent interjections during a conversation that indicate that the listener is paying attention and understands the speaker. Yes. In English, the concept would be like, oh, really? Yes, or, it would be brief. Is that right? Or, uh-huh. and, and not as common. Yes. Not as... Um, frequent. Frequent, exactly. Not as frequent. Uh, you know, just... Oh, okay. Mm. These types of things, uh-huh. Yeah. That, that indicate you're listening to the person, you're engaged in the conversation. Right. They used a lot more of those in Japan. They call it being an active listener. Yes. Yes, yes. and Japan is... is it is very important to do this. <laughs> Something Westerners don't often do when they go to Japan is they don't acknowledge that they're listening often enough. Yes. And it makes things awkward for yes. people in Japan. Like, yes. are you really getting what I'm saying? They already don't believe you can speak Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> and so for you to not be um, constantly repeating what they said back to them, uh, to not be constantly acknowledging and agreeing with what they're saying, it, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's awkward. Yeah, right? and, and vice versa. For the culture. Vice versa, a lot of times, uh, like English businessmen, will get the impression that the Japanese businessman is agreeing with everything they're saying. Yes, that will when, often when happen. When that's not true, they're, they're just, just agree- they're agreeing that you're saying it. Yes, <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> yes, it's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> they're just trying to let you know they heard you. Exactly. They're not necessarily telling you Agreeing that with they your agree with what you're saying. And that they're, yeah, exactly. So this is a cultural difference in the way the languages work that can mm-hmm. feel kind of funky um, when yeah. translated exactly as it's written in Japanese. Yes. Uh, this concept of aizuchi. So it's a form of phatic expression. It's considered reassuring to the speaker, indicating that the listener is active and involved in the discussion. Um, so, you know, there, there are short versions of this, like the word hi, which is yes, mm. right? Like, hi, hi. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I noticed this a yeah. lot, especially when I was interviewing Hironobu Sakaguchi, mm-hmm. when, the, when Mikey, the, the interpreter, would speak with Sakaguchi, they would always be like, hi, 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 and hi, like hi, back and hi, forth, hi. just confirming, yes. I get it, I heard you. Get yes. the info, yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's Aizuchi. But, um... Aizuchi can also take the form of so-called echo questions, which consist of a noun plus desuka. After the speaker, or after speaker A asks a question, speaker B might repeat a key noun followed by desuka to confirm that speaker A was uh, talking about uh, what speaker A was talking about or simply to keep communication open while speaker B thinks of an answer. Mm-hmm. So a rough translation of this in English would be something like uh, blank, you say. Mm. So you could be like, you know, we're gonna play Xenogears. Ah, Xenogears, you say. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, that would be a, oh. Right? Yeah, Xenogears desu ka? Yeah. Oh, ni. Yeah, you know what a good example of this is when Gandalf, and Frodo's talking to Gandalf in The Fellowship of the Ring in the movie. And 
Frodo says, you know, some people around here don't like you. And Gandalf's like, oh, really? Yes. Yeah, they yeah. labeled you a disturber of the peace. Oh, gracious me. And he, and, <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, and, and just being like that. Now, Gandalf's being funny about it. Mm. But giving responses like that to very brief every sentence that Frodo says, Gandalf's just like, oh, really? Oh, gracious me. You don't say. And like so, that yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah. is, is very much so what they do in Japan. <laughs> so, like, imagine if that conversation was... Um, uh, what was the first sentence? It's like, like Gandalf's pretending to be more interesting. And he's, than he's he like, "Oh, is. really?" And then it's like, "Yeah, you've been labeled a disturber of the peace. A disturber of the peace, oh, you say? Of the peace, you say? Yes. Oh uh, no, you don't say." The, 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 and they're just repeating oh, back, me. more or less, the that same would be thing more they just along. said that would to be you, more like it. but in the form of a question. Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, often, um, and this is actually a good practice um, when you're learning Japanese. Um, when to kind of shadow what somebody says, that they'll do this in Japanese as well. You'll repeat the whole second half of the last sentence that they said to you, right? So if they say, "Oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing this thing at this time," you'll say, "Oh, really? At this time?" Um, and you'll you just you repeat back what they said to you. You repeat it back to them, mm. um, and it helps to internalize language. It also gives you kind of some time to process what they're saying as you're kind of repeating it back to them. Yes. Um, and it's good practice uh, learning Japanese just in general. Yes. So, Aizuchi, right? Uh, the first time I ever noticed this, didn't obviously understand that there was a concept for it, was your brother, Landon, <laughs> yeah, yeah. who used to be active on the channel too. For yes. For those yep. who, who are longtime fans. He uh, served a mission in Japan, and mm -hmm. so he came back. He speaks yeah, Japanese. Yeah, speaks Japanese. And he came back, and he would be doing this. He would be repeating things I said back to me in the form of a question. And I was like, it was, it was often enough to feel weird. It was just yeah. like, huh, like, uh, why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. And I didn't say anything to him about it, but his girlfriend at the time did. She was very irritated by it, <laughs> apparently. Um, <laughs> and there's another buddy of his who used to kind of poke fun yes, at him. Yes, uh, an old roommate of his. It was funny because th they would be telling Landon a story and Landon would say, and I do this too, um, would say, oh, really? Oh, oh, that's crazy. No way. Are you really? Are you serious? And that's <laughs> my, that's just active listening, in my opinion. Yeah. But um, Landon's roommate at the time, it bugged him because he would have to repeat it again. Because it's like, oh, I did this thing yesterday. Oh, really? You did? Yeah. Yes, I did. <laughs> like, it, it, would, it would make his roommate just like second guess himself and what he was saying. Like, are you second guessing that you think I'm lying to you? Yes, I really did this. Yeah. <laughs> like, but he thought it was so funny that, uh, that Landon would, would often do that and yeah. kind of made fun of him for it a little bit, but so all in good fun. When I first played Xenogears, the, the main character, Faye, the, the main protagonist of the game, he does this all of the time, like yeah. all of the time, to such a degree to where it was like, like it's like I had noticed this was a thing in mm -hmm. anime and stuff. But I not watched, to this extent. But I hadn't really like thought about it until this this game, because mm -hmm. it's so prevalent in this game that I was starting to see Faye as being a really dumb person. Like, it, it came across to me... Like, even those basic concepts, he, he would, like, repeat it back to himself. He couldn't understand yeah. anything anyone was saying. It's what it felt like. Yeah. It was like, anytime someone said something, he would just repeat it in the form of a question as if he didn't get it. <laughs> it's just like, this is the most basic freaking thing ever. How do, you mm -hmm. not, how do you not get it? So, I interpreted Faye as being kind of a dumb person. Hmm. Whereas, 
Maybe a more accurate way is that he's a very attentive listener. Sure. That is the kind of thing that localization takes care of by changing if, the text. If it was done properly. Yes, yes. exactly. So that you don't yeah. misinterpret the character as being stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're actually just when really good listeners. Yeah. That's the kind mm. of the kind of thing that localization, good localization takes care of for another culture. So um, well, another element to this that I thought of, though, was that there are, there is also a shonen element to it, right? Where like the 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 archetype shonen hero is Goku, who is the dumb, lovable hero. Yes, like, of course. He's not like the smartest or brightest or sharpest right. dude, but he's got this great heart mm-hmm. and he's really strong and he's confident. Right. But he's not necessarily the smartest dude ever. Yeah. And maybe so there he is. Needs, he needs the archetypal savant, old person to help kind yes. of lead him along. Yeah. So maybe there is an element to that in Faye, but the Aizuchi was so frequent and ridiculous mm-hmm. that I felt like he was like sub 90 IQ. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's I, a way to put it. Um, there, <laughs> I'll probably bring this up in the next episode uh-huh. when we actually get into the game, but there's a part that cemented this even further in my mind of him being a stupid person mm-hmm. was that there's an area where there's some bird feed like up near Saitan's house. Okay. And I went to it and it's like, oh, there's bird feed. Do you like want to interact with this? It's kind of like a yes or no thing, I think. I'll, I'll confirm this next episode. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, like take the bird feed. And Faye eats the bird feed. I thought he was just going to take it and like feed the birds or something, right? I thought he would take it and be like, here you go, birds, like spread it around. But Faye eats the fetching bird feed. <laughs> He's like, oh, I feel sick. <laughs> so... <laughs> This this is um <laughs> what's it? Remember um Simple Jack? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's what it, it's kind of what it reminds me of. Now I, I didn't think it was like that far. <laughs> I know, but that right? is pretty that is pretty bad. Or no, no, this would be more like um not Charlie. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Who's the guy um Yeah, the illiterate Charlie. Is it Charlie who's the um Yes. He's never he's never been outside of Philly. He's never eaten an uh, an apple before. And yes. so he ate the sticker and the core, <laughs> and he just didn't know not to do it. And he tests the mouse traps by eating the cheese okay, out of the mouse traps. Okay, so Charlie. Traps. Yeah. Yes. And he can't read. He's literally illiterate. Okay, yes. <laughs> but he knows a lot about bird law. I, yes. <laughs> Anyways, Charlie is a good example. He, okay, so more like him than Simple Jack. Yes, right? yes. Not, okay. like, not like legitimately mentally handicapped, but just right. a very dumb person. Okay. So anyways... I'm bringing this up because it did kind of like hinder my enjoyment of the game because I'm a writer. I like really sharp dialogue. It's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I really appreciate Yasumi Matsuno's games because yes. they are I, always really sharp and they were, yes. they were translated by Alexander O. Smith okay. who is a phenomenal writer himself. Mm. This is what another element of localization that I think is really important. It's not just about being very knowledgeable about both languages mm-hmm. and having a very expert grasp on them. Yeah. It's also being a good storyteller yourself. Yeah. Because you have I think to so. you have to understand why this dialogue pertains or is important to the overall concept, the the where we're working up to in the story and mm-hmm. why this information is key and where it should be subtle and where it should be more overt and when you need to deliver this or not. You have to have a good understanding of that too. Yeah, I think so. And Alexander O. Smith is a phenomenal storyteller 
on top of being a great translator. And that's why Vagrant Story and Final Fantasy Tactics and Final Fantasy XII dialogue is mm. smooth as butter. It's, it's good. beautifully written. Mm -hmm. And Xenogears, not so much. <laughs> but it's not because Richard Honeywood isn't good. Mm. We've talked about all the circumstances for why. Well, in fact, there are even a lot of other translators will point to Richard Honeywood and say that he's their inspiration for, yeah. as a localized, like he's really good. And people within the profession really respect him a lot. Yeah. But he couldn't do what he needed to do to it's make Xenogears read like that. It's not his fault. It's, it's not, not his, his fault. fault. <laughs> but Xenogears does not read super well yeah. all the time. Hmm. And Aizuchi is part of it, but there's other things too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we'll get into that as it comes up. So just cool. wanted to point that out before we start the game. Um, so I also wanted to, to, to point out that it wasn't only Richard Honeywood who, who described Xenogears as being hell to work on. There were also development staff, some of the younger guys we talked about earlier. Uh, Yas uh, Yas Yasuyuki Hone said, uh, God, that was hell. I can tell you that I'm not going to go through it again. How we ever finished it is still a mystery to me. You have a quote from Ko Arai who says, It was tough and only a total nut would go through it. Uh, you have Takashi's own words. Frankly, I remember not having a very good feeling at the beginning of development. We were squeezed between two big titles at Square that they were promoting heavily, FF7 and FF8. And FF8. In that situation, if we had an owner who showed the proper sensitivity, I don't know if he's talking about Saguji here or not. I would guess not, but maybe. <laughs> maybe. If we had an owner who showed the proper sensitivity, we might not have fallen into the mental state where we are liable to get everything from stomach ulcers and twisted intestines to hernias and spot baldness. All that said, considering how it ended up, while I honestly thought I might go bald, in the end I didn't lose any hair and my health wasn't ruined. Uh, that wasn't the case for Yasunori Mitsuda, but we'll get mm, that in a minute. Yeah. Um, so Yasunori Mitsuda, I guess it's right here, uh, was the composer. He did Chrono Trigger soundtrack. In fact, many of the developers who worked on Chrono Trigger were the ones who worked on Xenogears. Came on because it's almost like the the B team, where it's like you got your yeah. Final Fantasy team, and then you've got yeah. your um, the other, the yeah. Secret of Mana, all the side games. You yeah. know, yeah. So like the Chrono Trigger, a lot of people who worked on Chrono Trigger, Masato Kato did a lot of like. Uh, writing, script writing on Xenogears. Mm. Um, he, you know, he did a lot of the story for Chrono Trigger. Um, Yasun Yasumi, not Matsuno, Yasunori, Yasunori Mitsuda, Mitsuda did the music. Um, and so uh, he talks about how tough it was too. The development took time as I predicted and I had the most difficult time. I anticipated it of course because I was trying to go beyond what I had done. I often thought, ah, oh, I can't do this anymore. Followed by, no, I can do this, I must and advanced little by little every day. Creating something out of nothing requires the most power. I haven't done anything but composing, but I think the same thing could be applied to anything. I often wonder, why am I doing such a painful thing? Then you talk about Honeywood sleeping in the office. A lot of these guys slept in the office. <laughs> they didn't get any time off. They were working hellish hours. Yeah. But it was, it was a very tough, very, very tough project for a lot of the people who worked on it. Yeah, it almost killed several people. <laughs> Including Yasunori Mitsuda. Yeah, and, and Takahashi wanted to say about Mitsuda. I really like this quote. He said, Yasunori is one of the people who heavily supported me in Xenogears. Without his music, the game would not have been, or it would have been a lot worse than our goal. My determination wouldn't have continued either. This soundtrack holds everything that enhanced me in this project. So at a time when he felt like it wasn't coming together, all the stress, holy crap, are we ever going to finish this on time? 
I'm trying to write a story that in incorporates like Freudian and Neo-Freudian and Nietzschean <laughs> philosophy, and it's like this doesn't read well. And it's, it's not get the point's not getting across. Right. All the things that a storyteller worries and is concerned about. Yes. As they're writing something that's not working. Right. I can't tell you how frustrating it is of when course. you've put half <laughs> yeah. your life into something like I have done, and it's and you realize it doesn't work. It's like, this story doesn't work. What the frick? I've spent like 10 mm. years working on this. The story sucks. It doesn't, gosh dang it. It's like flip tables. Mm. He's in a moment like that, and then Mitsuda yeah. music goes in, and it's like, oh, it works. It works. Holy crap. Yeah. That's all it needed. Mitsuda's got right. that kind of touch. One of the best um, He's amazing. musicians, I think. Uh, he actually did end up going to the hospital, Mitsuda did, <laughs> working on yeah, this game again. Would, apparently not for the first time. No. It, it was like almost like a... Like a common thing, where when Mitsuda finished a project, he would then go to the hospital. Yeah. But I do have to point out a little difference between the Japanese hospital system versus the American uh, hospital okay. system. Um, going when someone in Japan says, you know, going to the hospital, the is it um, what Bioin? It's not so. It's it's a little more like an urgent care clinic and not a little so much like less a total emergency. It could be life both. It could be both. But um, Japan has universal health care, right? Yeah. So. It is technically a hospital, but the way that they treat it, you know, you don't you don't pay your bills for healthcare. Yeah, it, it the government takes care of it all, and so people will go to the hospital. Like in America, it's like you don't go to the hospital until, unless you freaking absolutely are about to die, right? Because yeah, you don't want to pay. Because you don't want to pay emergency bill. or any, you know, you set up an appointment. You don't go to the hospital right then and there. In Japan, you can call an ambulance. There are old people in Japan who will call an ambulance just because they're lonely and they want to talk to the paramedics and they just tell them stories about their life. Like, and then when there's no negative, it, they don't pay anything. It's, yeah. it's a free service offered by the government. There are people in Japan where if you have a cold, you go to the hospital, you get an IV of like vitamin C and the, the nutrients and stuff and you just chill there for like two or three hours and then until you're feeling better, you know, and then take it out and then you go and go back to work, right? Mm. Cold, you wouldn't have a cold for very long in Japan if you did that because they are able to kind of, you know, flush your system. You could literally go on an IV for a cold. Yeah. That doesn't happen in America. Sure. Um, so when, I know, I don't know exactly the extent of Yasunori Norimitsura's problems. I know he had stomach ulcers will on say, Trigger, but. Okay, then, then that's. I don't know about this game. But but when you have once you have stomach ulcers, I think the possibility of building again yeah. is higher because it's it's associated with stress and yeah. stuff. Um, but you know when people say oh they had to go to the hospital, it's not the same thing in Japan as it is in America sure. or any other country that doesn't have universal health care. Sure, it's uh, it's less of a big deal, I would say. Yeah, or it could be a big deal. It's just not necessarily so. Well, I mean, there's also the fact that he was a heavy. Smoker at the time. Yes, too. yes, which he quit. Which, I, he made a lot of life changes. Well, yeah, because <laughs> after of, this, I mean, the stress <laughs> of working in that environment, like yeah. they take up smoking because it, it yes. calms you down. Well, it, I know. How else are you going to go on three hours of sleep every day? Yeah, you got it. You're mm. going to be drinking tons of coffee. You're going to be smoking, and when it's time for you to finally sleep, you're going to be drinking so that you can sleep quickly. Yeah, and then you're going to wake up and have coffee and smoke and drink again yeah. at night. Like it's it's a crazy cycle. But in order to be that awake and alert, you have to be on things. Yeah. Whether it's alcohol, Stimulates caffeine, or um, what's tobacco, uh, the N-word, uh, nicotine. Nicotine, you're, yeah. you You gotta be on something, otherwise you, like, you're just gonna die. Yeah. And I think that fueled a lot of Mitsuda's problems. He also mentioned well, he didn't eat so well. Yeah, he didn't eat well. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was after Xenogears that he decided, I have got to take better care of myself. And that included leaving Square Leaving Enix. Square. Yeah, which 
I, I, no, not everyone can be Nintendo. In fact, no one can be Nintendo, it seems. Yeah. In terms of treating your employees and producing good quality content and everyone wants to work for you. Yeah. Uh, Nintendo's one of the um, top 10, like, girlfriends rated their husbands or their boyfriend's jobs. Where would you like your husband or boyfriend to work at? Nintendo was, like, top in Japan. They are like, mm -hmm. I want to work at Nintendo. They treat well, they have good job satisfaction, they don't leave, they don't move around. But Square Enix, for whatever reason, being healthy meant leaving the company. Yes. That, that's, and that's a lot of companies in Japan. If you guys have seen my video on this channel about um, the Yakuza, is it Yakuza? Yeah, Yakuza. Or no, or, or um, um, Is it in relation to Konami? Oh, the though, word, right? um, yes, it was Konami. So the Yakuza was one, that's part of it, but not necessarily that video. There's the other one um, about Karoshi and how Japanese people are overworked like yeah. crazy. But every company does it. Mm. Like every company, 7-Eleven or Hitachi, it doesn't matter. They all do it. They all overwork their employees like crazy. And they're constantly doing like, you know, 100 hours of overtime, overtime per week. So you work, or per month. You work your 80-hour weeks. Or probably it's, for them it's more like 100-hour weeks because they work Saturdays and extra hours. But then 100 hours of overtime yeah. on top of that. Yeah. Every over and over and over and over and over. And it's crazy. So this type of work environment, it seems like Square Enix was, um, you know, part of the the whole system that drove it's people towards thing. pretty yeah. horrible health side effects. But um, yeah, my video on Karoshi, I think it's called uh, Japan's um, Dark Secret. I can't remember. Well, what dark it's history, but it's dark history. This one was called Dark History of the Dark History of J the Japanese Video Game Industry, something like that. Yeah, and that'll give you a good idea of what these workers go through if this wasn't enough, because it's it's rough, especially in the '90s. It was yeah. really hard. Yeah. Um, okay, so the, I think I've, I've, this, some of this will be a repeat of things we've said throughout, but this is kind of the last thing I want to say before we actually start sure. the game. I'll just read my note. <clears throat> As we prepare to get started on the playthrough of Xenogears, keep in mind that while a surface-level summary of the game's plot might look like nothing more than a typical JRPG plot, the teenage boy from a village that gets destroyed in the opening scenario goes on a quest to kill God, right? <laughs> this isn't what makes the game's narrative special. It's the use of allegory and metaphor and symbolism. It's, it's literary qualities. It's references to philosophy and, psycho, uh, and psychology and religion that makes it so memorable and meaningful. Um, it's also important to keep in mind that while references to Nietzsche or Freud or a slew of others might be made, that doesn't necessarily mean Takahashi and Surya Saga are championing those ideas. In some cases, they may actually be trying to refute them. I was going to bring that up, actually. Yes. This is something that I, I find very frustrating about a lot of um, commentary on movies or books or stuff in kind of more of like a m more politically correct uh, society that we're in right now, where like, I think yeah. people can get confused sometimes that just because a piece of content exists in a story mm -hmm. doesn't mean that the creator is trying to say, is trying to um, uh, not validate, but like um, condone Condone, this. that's the word, yeah. In a lot of cases, it's the exact opposite. They're right. trying to condemn that thing. Exactly, yeah. But it's like, oh, that controversial topic is in there, they must be yes. bigots or something like that. Right? You hear that a lot nowadays. So yeah. you have to be careful with that. Like um, Dostoevsky is another great example of this in- mm, um, The best. Because he would even write things exploring topics 
that were kind of contrary to what he personally felt. Yes. But, but it's exploration. He was exploring the ideas of what if people yes. really did live in these competing ways that Nietzsche mentioned. Uh, let's write the Brothers Karamazov and let's see how this relationship would actually have unfolded. Right. Yeah. So like Letters from the Underground is a good example. Yes, yeah, that the, one's The narrator good. of that story, I mean like, if, if you're reading that and you're thinking that this is like a, the voice of Dostoevsky's ideas, like then, you, then you're, not, you're not getting a proper understanding of what he's trying to say with it. Yeah. It's like, he is that's what he would do, is he would take somebody's idea who he disagreed with, mm -hmm. and he would try to explore that to yes. all of its conclusions. Which is what a good philosopher would do. Yeah. I don't think we have philosophers anymore yeah. in today's world. Well, we do, apparently, with the creator of Xenogears, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's less um, uh, appreciated yeah. in the world today, I think. People who are able and willing to explore controversial taboo ideas you know yeah I mean, I'm sure we have some but like it does you're right it yeah, does seem I'm sure there are it does seem to be they're less valued there's like a might be maybe it. yeah like they don't have quite as high of a esteem or maybe a, a position or, or yeah. whatever in the hierarchy of who we throw our the money idolize. at and worship and idolize yes, right? yeah <laughs> I think that's true unless they happen to be on the right side politically, I don't mean right, the correct side, correct side politically for the politically correct types um, to where it's like, oh, you are allowed to explore this philosophy within the boundaries that the political correct advocates have, sure. have laid out. There are plenty of people who are willing to do that, but uh, less people willing to play devil's advocate, for example, or yes. what if, you know, like what if, I don't even want to say it because we'll get canceled. So I can't even say it. What if, what if, fill in the blanks with your own mind and then realize that, oh, you're not allowed to say that and just, you know, do with that what you will. But the point isn't to say, oh, it should be allowed. The point what if is we to killed just God? explore it. Explore yeah. the idea to as many of the conclusions as you can draw and see where it leads. And sure. then have somebody who come in and be like, no, you're wrong. And then they... Mm -hmm. You know, they tell you all the reasons why. And, and that's, it's part of a dialogue, actually. <laughs> yes. And dialogue meaning dia, like two, die, and then lo log is logos, like the logos, which is where the word logic comes from, right? Yeah. You're having an exchange between two different logoses, two different logics, two different expressions of the mind, right? And that's what a dialogue is. It's not just one orthodox thing being repeated by both sides. It's mm -hmm. it's both people thinking for themselves and, and meeting in the middle and coming together. And there's something so valuable in that that I think we're missing so much of now. Kind of like a, a video book game book club <laughs> between the audience and the hosts. Yes, we love that. Right? We love that. Two, Daya, right? Daya, exactly. Um, so yeah, don't, don't take everything that you see in the game as like, oh, yeah. they're, they're, they're referencing Nietzsche here. They must agree with Nietzsche right. on this thing. Yeah. Because yeah. as we will discuss later on, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So I, I can say there's one example, having not played the game. Um, <laughs> there is Nietzsche's idea of, of the dead God theory, I guess, yes. that we killed God through our advancements and all sorts of things. Um, and the quote goes something along the lines of, uh, God is dead, we've killed him, and we will never be able to find enough... Um, like water to wash away the sin that we've just committed against society as a whole, right? The idea being, we killed God, that was not a very well thought out thing that we just did. <laughs> but in a video game or anime or something that explores well, 
what if we go out and kill God? Okay, we've got to show you killing God. We go out and kill God, and and it's a good thing. Like it's it's just a yeah. counterpoint to the Nietzschean idea, and it's not it's exploring Nietzschean ideology without necessarily agreeing with it. Yeah. Now, I don't know how this game takes without it. Without resulting just saying, in that's the an nihilistic example of how you could do viewpoint. it exactly, which is what Nietzsche was saying. Hey, we're doomed to nihilism from now on because God's yeah. dead. Um, whereas, well, maybe we aren't. Maybe there's a way, and let's have some new other people engage in a dialogue with this Nietzschean idea, um, with their own logos that says it's possible. Yeah. Here's how it might be possible, and here's a game or an anime or something that shows how it may still work, and we're not doomed forever. Right. right. Which is as we go back to. And that's an exploration of Nietzschean idea. It's not agreeing or disagreeing. It's just yeah. a dialogue. Yeah, which, which goes back to bookending this with the beginning. His quote about, if I just came out to a bunch of young people and said this stuff, they wouldn't listen to me. Yes. So I created an anime video game exactly. <laughs> to tell people about this stuff. Yes. And that is what Xenogears is. And so next episode, we will delve into the intro. The and like actual I said, game. We will go all the way through the Black Moon Forest. So play up all the way to the end of the Black Moon Forest for next episode. And next week we will return and talk about it. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, anybody who wants to contribute any more uh, behind the scenes or dev history stuff that we might have missed, uh, feel free to hit us up with uh, links or anything like that in the comments section. Um, I, I love to read and learn as much as I can about the, the dev history of Xenogears in particular. It's a it's fascinating, fascinating, fascinating yeah. game. And there's so much to consider, so we would very much appreciate that. Kaysen is about to have another child come into his family. Child number, number three. three. And it is scheduled, it's gonna happen by one week from today. So I will not be here next time. Yes. I will, I want to be here for the, 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 next the one. one after. Yeah. But I will not be here next time. So yeah. you might still hear from me through the ether <laughs> in some way, but so, I will not be present. There will be somebody yes. else here, right? So I have invited um, a very special guest who I will not reveal this time. Um, actually, two guests. And uh, it's going to be really fun. It's going to be really fun. So look there forward to that. There are people who are very familiar with Xenogears. So yes. It will be very Deeply, good. deeply, deeply familiar with Xenogears. Um, yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun talking to them. And uh, until then, everybody, have a great week. We'll see you again soon.